Amazon's merger and acquisition in the healthcare space, customer-centric digital transformation strategies, and digital transformation in professional services. Those are just a few things we're going to cover in today's episode of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 109. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including digital strategy, software selection, change management, program management, benefits realization, basically everything you need to know about digital transformation. We cover here in Transformation Ground Control. This is episode number 109. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys. With me, as always, is Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yes, thank you for being here, and thank you to the audience for being here. As a quick reminder, you can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check us out. New episodes every Wednesday, and great show for you today. We're going to uh, start off our opening segment talking about. Uh, first of all, we'll take some Q and A, some questions and answers from social media, uh, questions we've received in recent days and weeks. We'll cover some of those uh, questions from Kyler's question jar that she pulls from social media. And then we're going to get into our hot topic for today, which is a case study of Amazon's merger and acquisition activity in the healthcare industry, which uh, Amazon being one of the largest companies in the world is always interesting to see what new uh, verticals and areas they're, they're branching out into. And then the second segment of the show, we're going to bring on our first guest, who is Sam Monty, the CFO of Epicor Software. He's going to be on the show chatting with me about customer-centric digital transformation strategies, which is super interesting because uh, it was actually a topic that he suggested, and he's a CFO type, a finance type, and when he suggested it, it kind of threw me off off guard because I, I typically don't expect a CFO to be thinking about customer-centric stuff uh, to begin with. So this will be a, a really good conversation we'll have with him later in the show. And then finally, we are going to uh, have an interview that I did with another software vendor called Unit 4, um, I recently did an interview to talk about digital transformation in the professional services space. So we'll have uh, that discussion with the folks over at Unit 4 uh, in this third segment of today's show. But before we jump into those other segments, let's let's get started on the Q&A and hot topic you've got for us here today, Kyler. Yeah, so I think I'm going to start with the hot topic today because it, it kind of you know goes into a little bit of Q&A. So it's been no secret that Amazon has wanted to get in the healthcare industry for some time now. I'm going to kind of take you through the journey that they, um, they've gone through as they just recently, in the last couple of weeks, acquired One Medical, which um, that officially closed on Wednesday of this last week, so here early in 2023. Um, it's one of the latest series of moves to really solidify them in the healthcare um, industry. That acquisition, just for your reference, was $4 billion, so a pretty big one there. Mm, wow. 
but it goes all the way back to 2018 when they tried to launch a joint venture with JP Morgan Chase and Co um, and Berkshire and Hathaway um, and Haven it was called was basically trying to lower the cost collectively and create some bargaining power to negotiate prices with providers. Um, it didn't really work. It was a pretty big failure um, at the time, but kind of, you know, again, showcasing the interest to move into that industry. Uh, and then in 2019, they launched what was called Amazon Care. Um, and it was a virtual health clinic for employers enrolled in Amazon health insurance plans. Uh, and obviously that kind of skyrocketed when we went into the pandemic where virtual healthcare became a main method of treatment and communication with providers. But again, it, it really didn't take off um, until they were able to establish more of the relationships with providers and insurance networks. Hmm. Um, and then also in 2018, they acquired the online pharmacy, which is PillPack, for $753 million, um, and it actually offers drug discounts to Prime members through its acquisition, but it, it would fundamentally now serve as their main um, piece of their pharmacy services, which I didn't even know they had pharmacy services, but they do apparently now in 45 states unlimited here in the United States. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that yeah. either. Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting story, which is why I wanted to bring it to my favorite podcast here. So in 2022, Amazon launched uh, the health offering Amazon Clinic in 32 states, and that is a third-party telehealth provider for non-urgent health conditions. Um, and they're able to be kind of a virtual storefront for pharmacy uh, providers as well. And then lastly, we see the One Medical, which is obviously the largest um, acquisition in kind of their portfolio or umbrella that they're trying to build and establish in the healthcare industry. Um, and so this, this deal sp specifically drew interest from federal regulators, um, and it took them a long time to close on it, and they were able to finalize it um, just because of merger and acquisition laws here in the United States. Um, they also have, and this is really the interesting part for all of you data lovers out there, um, is AWS. I don't know if you know this, Eric, but this surprised me and maybe it won't to you, but AWS holds 24% of the global healthcare cloud market. Um, did you know that? I had no idea. I yeah. suppose it shouldn't surprise me, but it, it I know. sort of does. <laughs> So what their goal is to enable a large-scale analysis and kind of collaborative approach for organizations trying to utilize in-person and telehealth and pharmacy care all in one place while kind of creating a healthcare cloud. So they haven't been specific on exactly what they're going to do with all of these assets, but many people have um, the assumption that they're they're going to create some sort of huge relationship that's going to revolutionize the healthcare industry and bring it more into a digital environment, even more so than we've seen it kind of been forced into. Um, for example, the strong relationships One Medical has existing with healthcare systems is really the true value of that, what they weren't able to achieve with Haven in 2018. 
Um, so that's kind of the story of the digitization of healthcare with one of obviously the a global cloud provider, and then also of obviously the retail front of it as well. Um, so wanted to see kind of just your take on that, your reaction to it, and then maybe what you might see they're able to do with all of those healthcare assets, both in person, because Medical One, I should mention, has in-person clinics as well. That's part of the acquisition is the actual real estate. And then um, obviously the the PillPack Pharmacy opportunities and Amazon Pharmacy too. So lots of movement to kind of disrupt the healthcare industry in that case study. Yeah, for sure. And it shouldn't be surprising that Amazon is pushing so aggressively into healthcare given that they started off as a bookstore retailer back in the 90s or whenever it was. I guess it was the, the 90s. Um, seems like longer than that, but it was- I know it does. <laughs> but whatever, it was a long time ago. Um, but they started off just selling books and then CDs and now they, now they sell just about everything. I didn't know about all this healthcare stuff. I didn't know you could get prescriptions online, but it seems to be a natural extension. What also strikes me is that you talk about a $4 billion or a $800 million acquisition. And I feel like Amazon is one of the few companies in the world where it's sort of like chump change or uh, just money they can play with, you know, in terms of these acquisitions. But um, that's fascinating. And I, I also find it fascinating, too, that the AWS piece of it, the, the Amazon Web Services in the cloud, you know, that them hosting 20, would you say 24% of the, mm -hmm. the healthcare of the market? global healthcare network. Yeah, which is, I think, a lot. That's a but, ton, especially looking yeah. at the global market. I was thinking you meant just in North America or, mm -hmm. you know, sort of where they're based. But if you're talking worldwide, that's even more impressive. So I think it's just, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of things that come to mind. One is the scale that Amazon has and the fact that they are likely to transform and disrupt the healthcare industry as they have most industries they've touched. So I think that's, that's super interesting uh, for sure. What about, it kind of reminds me of these new players in the software vendor field that are kind of these low code, no code systems that are trying to do things differently. And then looking at like the bigger giants of the healthcare industry um, being kind of like uh, similar to the Oracle SAP uh, type of established incumbents. What do you think their reaction will be to kind of this new digital landscape in the healthcare industry that Amazon, being as powerful as it is, is able to provide? Well, it's, I think, you know, two answers. One would be that anytime there's disruption to an industry like that, it, it means there's changes, there's typically a strain on existing technologies and or an opportunity to use technology in a new way to leverage that new landscape. And I think that points to or, or uh, puts the playing field more in favor of upstart or smaller, younger software companies. I think the big software companies are, are trying to balance so many different industry verticals and so many different things that they're trying to accomplish as, as a large big tech vendor that I think the smaller companies have an advantage here to be able to really go attack one industry, go respond quickly to whatever those changes are and whatever the new technological needs are in that emerging or evolving landscape. So I think it, it just, I think it's a good example of how constant change and disruption in the industry will always open up new opportunities for smaller, more nimble software vendors. And I think it puts the larger, the larger software vendors at a pretty significant disadvantage. Absolutely. Well, really interesting kind of movement in the healthcare space. I'd love to hear from the audience 
What are some other industries that you've seen extreme disruption um, from a digital transformation standpoint in the last couple of years? Um, I think we can get some really good conversations going about that. And so I guess I should ask you first, Eric, what's the number one industry that you think has experienced a digital transformation in the last two to five years? Uh, wow, I wasn't ready for that. Um, <laughs> no, not that I'm ever ready for any of the right. questions you ask me. But <laughs> Just make um, it up as I go. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I I, um, I I always tend to gravitate to the supply chain related mm-hmm. industries. So anything that's supply chain intensive, I think that's something that's going through uh, quite a bit of change. Um, I also look at government and the public sector I, only because, not because they're necessarily moving quickly or changing more quickly than other industries, but more because they're typically lagging behind in some of their technological investments. So I think that's just a space where there's just, it's ripe for more digital transformation. But I think, you know, the, the bigger thing that I look at, and it doesn't fully answer your question, but maybe it gives a framework to better answer the question is anytime there is disruption to an industry like healthcare and Amazon's foray into healthcare, that disruption is what creates the need for digital transformation, which is why the pandemic created such a uh, demand for digital transformation, because the pandemic created a lot of disruption in terms of how we operate. Cybersecurity became a bigger deal. Um, Hybrid work environments with the work from home movement created new nuances and new needs from from a technological perspective. Um, so I think, you know, the higher degree of change in any given industry, the more likely it is that they're going to be going through digital transformation. So I think that points to supply chain intensive businesses. Um, I also think another one that I speculate will be um, highly disrupted in the coming years will be the energy and utilities industry, uh, largely because when you talk about electrifying cars and, um, you know, moving from you know, fossil fuels, traditional fossil fuels to more electric based platforms like, like vehicles, um, that's going to put strain on the, the, uh, utility grids throughout the world, which will then put strains on the systems they have to be able to maintain and manage those, those grids. So I think energy and utilities is another one that, that could be disrupted. So those are a few that come to mind, but I think the whole world's just being disrupted in a lot of ways right now. So it's, I think, I don't know of any industries that aren't being impacted in some way and aren't being uh, sort of forced into digital transformations in some way. There you go. Absolutely. Well, um, looking forward to hearing from the audience too. So go ahead and pop those comments um, in there of what industry you think is going through the highest amount of digital transformation um, in the last couple of years. But let's get to your question jar. If you're new here and you don't know about Eric's question jar, every week I go on to all of his social media channels, YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, all of the different channels that we have. Um, and if you tag me at Kyler Cheatham, I can ask your question directly, but I do pull a lot of audience questions and there was a lot of good dialogue this week. So I actually have a ton in here, so we won't get to all of my questions, but let's go for it. All right. I wonder well, what it was. I wonder why there were so many questions this this week. Well, I think you're about to find out real quick. Okay. If you don't already know. So. I don't already know. So it'll <laughs> be fun to find out. <laughs> yeah. There was one video that um, produced a lot of dialogue. Ooh. Um, I'm intrigued. So this is actually a question from that video. I was hoping that we would, I'd give you an opportunity to explain it because many of your questions are from this video. So you did a video on your YouTube channel recently. Um, and if you don't 
um, know Eric's YouTube channel. It's linked here in the description. You can go um, watch all of his videos. He is dangerously close to 50,000 subscribers. So definitely hit that subscribe button as well. Um, but this video, you actually had a pretty vulnerable conversation about a digital transformation third stage went through as a company that failed. And that produced a lot of dialogue around um, that transparency. So this question is, it seems like no matter how trivial, the devil is in the details. How are you supposed to identify these risks before failures happen? So maybe yeah. do you want to give like a quick background on the video beforehand, sure. just so everybody knows what we're talking about, and then they can go watch it? Yeah. So uh, I think it was last week, I published a video uh, called how our company's digital transformation failed. And essentially what it was, it wasn't a full scale digital transformation, but it was a, it was a back office um, Microsoft Outlook migration. So we moved from a third party provider. We were having security issues and accessibility issues with that provider. It was great to get us started as a company, but we, we sort of outgrew their capabilities. So we migrated to another provider and, um, and the whole premise or the whole sort of outcome or the, the, the case study here is that, um, I thought it was a back office upgrade. Shame on me. I thought it was something that wouldn't have a huge impact or shouldn't have a huge impact on uh, the end users. And uh, turns out I was wrong. It did have an impact in, in unforeseen ways. And so there's a, even though it, it's oftentimes as consultants, it's, it's harder to apply your own lessons to yourselves because it's not a client focused thing. So when it's our clients and it's a more complex digital transformation, a lot of these lessons are sort of no brainers. But it was a good reminder to me that even the smallest sorts of change or the smallest sorts of upgrades or migrations, no matter how trivial it may seem, it's a good reminder that there's always challenges and hidden risks there. Um, and that's really the premise of the video. I talk about some of the lessons and takeaways from that, even though it's a, you know, a fairly small scale or relatively small scale transformation we went through. Um, just as a side note, another sort of uh, uh, growing pain we're going through as an organization, a third stage and needing to take a, another dose of our own medicine is that we are in need of our own broader digital transformation. This was just an Outlook server sort of migration, but we actually have outgrown most of the systems we use as a company. And we're in the process of, of in 2023, going through a, a much broader uh, transformation. So this, this uh, smaller one that we went through here in early 2023 was good conditioning for us. It was good lessons, a good eye opener. And I think, uh, you know, I look forward to the, you know, to, to the bigger transformation we need to go through, because I think it's sort of gotten us dialed in on what we need to do in terms of taking a dose of our own medicine. So um, that's, that's sort of the backdrop. And now with all that, I already forgot the question. <laughs> so, <laughs> so did I, no, I'm just joking. It says, it just goes to show no matter how trivial the devil's in the details, how can you find these nuances before a project fails? Yeah, I think in a, in a normal transformation, and this is something we do with our clients all the time, is you lay out these scenarios, you lay out what the business processes are going to look like, you test those business processes, and you work through the issues in a test environment. In this case, because it was a, a migration that couldn't really be tested until we had completed the migration, uh, we were sort of forced to test things in a live environment over a weekend. Um, you know, in a, in a full-blown digital transformation, you're not going to do testing in a weekend. It's going to take weeks, if not months, to go through multiple iterations of testing. But in our case, because it was a, a back office thing and it was something that couldn't be tested in a test, you know, in a sandbox or test environment, in our case, um, we had to test it over a weekend. And that's where we ran into a lot of the problems. Fortunately, we had that weekend to 
work through a lot of them, but there were some, there were some fallout and some residual, um, issues, which by the way, you and I, I think were probably the most impacted by it. Uh, ironically enough, the CEO and, uh, head of marketing for our company were the, the ones that were most impacted by the, by the transformation, which, uh, you and I had some, you know, I wouldn't say we were laughing to, together it was more commiserating with our shared, uh, issues that we were having for a few days after. Um, but I think that's the key is you really have to lay out the scenarios, especially if you're going through the good news, is if you're going through a more complex ERP implementation or a enterprise tech implementation of any sort, you're going to have a test environment. You're in the key there is to really make sure that you work through all these different scenarios and what ifs. A lot of times organizations say, well, let's just, you know, let's just cover 50 or 60 or 70% of our scenarios and we'll just deal with the other 20 or 30%, you know, after, after go live. And that's, that's a, you know, that's a decision only you can make as an organization, but you just have to recognize that even if you're 95% tested, that 5% you didn't test, that could create some real disruption and some unexpected disruption to your business. So you just want to really think through that. And that's something I didn't think through yet. I didn't really think that there would be issues with Microsoft Teams or um, calendar invitations that now we're no longer working with the Teams link because we, we switched hosting providers. But in hindsight, I should have known that. And, you know, a lot of us on the team probably should, should have known or thought through that. But again, because of what we do, it wasn't client facing. We sort of, you know, glossed over some of those details. So that's probably the biggest thing is that the identification of scenarios, testing and knowing that, you know, 80, 90% um, tested, it may not be enough for you as an organization, especially if there's a, a customer facing impact as well. And is there a, a priority list in which maybe for an organization that really needs to focus on X, Y, and Z area of the business, should there be more testing in that area to ensure that that's a core competency, for example? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's typically what happens is you, you focus on the high volume, most common scenarios and things that are obvious that you can't disrupt those things because it's, it's sort of your, your core, you know, your core business process or it's customer facing or whatever. What's not always so obvious is, you know, those little exceptions and how disruptive those little exceptions can be. And sometimes they can turn into showstoppers. Um, and we saw a little bit of that on, again, on a small micro scale, uh, in our company. Um, fortunately it was, fairly, fairly isolated for the most part, um, not customer facing, didn't affect our, you know, our core operations, but certainly affected our productivity for a few days and, um, and more so than I thought. So I, I think that's really the key is to recognize that even the small exceptions could end up becoming bigger deals, especially when the dominoes, you know, the domino effect, one person or one step in the process, that's that exception that breaks down could affect and disrupt other parts of the business that have been fully tested. But now you've got a broken process upstream or downstream that's affecting those otherwise smooth processes upstream and downstream. So I think that's the way you really have to think through that. Gotcha. Well, let's get to a few more of these before we transition. Let's do. Um, oh, my goodness. I really just laid this one up. This was the universe just giving me a gift. <laughs> but um, what is an example of a core competency? Ooh, that was good. That was a good segue. Yeah. A good unplanned segue. Um, so, so our core competency would be whatever you're good at as a company that makes you different in terms of helping you win more in the marketplace or provide better service or better products than your competitors or your peers. So, for some, or it, it really depends on what you know what your strategy is as a business. For some organizations, it's it's providing low cost. You know, it could be that you're a low cost provider, you're super efficient. 
and you can undercut the competition because you're so efficient. In that case, you know, your digital transformation strategy is going to probably focus on preserving and enhancing that cost advantage, and especially if that's your core competency. For other organizations, for example, a, you know, a complex engineer to order manufacturer, they manufacture very high-end custom tailored products. They're not competing on price necessarily. They might be competing more on flexibility and being able to provide more options to customers and more quickly than the competition can, in which case that becomes a core competency, your ability to handle that product configuration and respond to customers. That That's your core competency. Um, you know, there's just there's a whole host of options, but those are a couple couple examples of, of core competencies. But I think you really have to look at what is it, again, what is it that makes you different and allows you to be better than your peers in the industry? Yeah, almost that competitive advantage type of thing. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's do one more here. Oh, this is a good one. I've been working on my um, sticky note forming um, piece so they don't get stuck to the jar. So it's just, it's a transformation, if you will. Um, is there a certain program to assess change or is this just done via a spreadsheet in a manual process? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, there, there may be tools out there. Um, they, they may not be widely accepted or widely used, but, um, there may be tools. We, we tend to focus on, on the actual gathering of information and the analysis of information. So we don't, as a, we as a company, don't have an automated tool yet. Although we're starting to automate more and more of our our processes and using technology more and more within our consulting uh, offering. Change management, though, uh, isn't one that has become highly automated. Other than, you know, the the online analytics tool we use to do an organizational assessment to gather information about the culture of the company and some of the potential. Um, uh, pitfalls of change for any given organization. So we do have a tool that captures that information from large samples of, of employees throughout the organization. So I shouldn't say there is no technology, but that that's more of a data capture tool. And then the analysis, you know, the brain power behind it is something that we, we do manually. And then we benchmark it to other clients or compare it to the results, the quantitative results of other clients to get sort of a benchmark. So um, I'm probably uh, understating the use of technology here as I'm talking through it, but uh, but there is uh, some use of technology, but I think that the key there is really knowing what to look for in, especially in change management. It's such a qualitative thing that um, you, we try to turn it into a quantitative, more of a scientist or a science-based approach versus just art, but you really do have to have both science and art when you're, when you're analyzing that. Very good. Well, again, if you have a question for Eric, you can put it on his social media and uh, make sure to tag me if you definitely want to be in next week's episode. But either way, I always pull those um, to make sure that we address your questions there. So thank you so much for all the great engagement. You really do make the show. Um, if you do have any more questions in this Q&A session, pop them in the comments um, and we'll come back in and answer them on our live stream as well. Yeah. Yeah, love love the questions. That's probably my favorite part of the show now that we've introduced this Q and A thing. So I'd love to get the audience involved. And uh, certainly, if you drop, even if you just drop it in the chat right here, wherever you're watching this, watching or listening to this podcast, if you drop it there, we'll see it there as well. If you want us to cover one of your questions in an upcoming episode, uh, so thank you in advance for that. Um, all right, so we're going to shift gears. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have our first guest on the show. Uh, his name is Sam Monty. He's the CFO of a company called Epicor Software. He's going to be on the show talking about customer-centric digital transformation strategies. 
So we'll have Sam on the show in just a moment, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 109. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. Every week, we cover topics related to digital transformation, including digital strategy, software selection, program management, change management, and a bunch of other stuff related to digital transformation, including our next topic, which is a, a first-time topic for us on this podcast. We have we have yet to cover this whole concept of customer-centric digital transformation strategies. And, and this is a really interesting topic that was not my idea. It was actually our guest's idea. It was his suggestion, and uh, I love the idea, and I'm glad we're, we're going to talk about it. Um, but we haven't talked about customer centricity on this show. And I think a lot of times one of the risks with digital transformations is you get so caught up in the back office internal side of things. You know, you get focused on your financial accounting, your inventory management, your production, your manufacturing, your HR, all that stuff. It's important. But a lot of times organizations lose track of what it is they're trying to do and how all this affects and can enhance the customer experience. So, um, this would be a great topic to dive into. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, our guest, Sam, who's the CMO, the CFO of Epicor Software, um, he came up with the idea and it was fascinating hearing it from a finance guy uh, come up with this idea. So I think that'll be a, an interesting perspective too, because I'm, I'm going to assume that we're probably going to talk about this, not just from a feel good, let's make our customers happy perspective, but also from more of a, a dollars and cents a quantitative perspective, which, which should make it interesting. So with all that being said, Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. Glad to be joining you this morning. Glad to have you. First time we've, we've had a discussion in, uh, in this interview format. So really appreciate you being here today. I'm looking forward to the conversation, but before we jump in and start talking about customer centricity and what it means to digital transformation and how ERP software has evolved to address that customer centricity. Why don't we start with you and your background? What tell us a little bit about you, and then we'll we'll talk about Epicor Software as well. Oh, thanks, Eric. I'm actually in my 30th uh, year, my professional career. Um, undergraduate in accounting, graduate degree in finance. Um, started off in corporate audit 30 years ago, but quickly moved into um, varying degrees of operational finance roles. I started the first 20 years of my career in two Fortune 500 companies. I had the privilege uh, to work at the Sherman Williams Paint Company and then to spend 15 years at Rockwell Automation. Uh, some people know as Alan Bradley, which are part of the former Rockwell International Company and spent 15 years there in industrial automation uh, and I had the privilege near the end of my career there to head as the finance lead for software for Rockwell. 
And that brought me down to Austin, Texas, which gave me really good insight to how software engages and works within business and the importance of it. And uh, being in Austin, naturally, it's not surprising, um, was introduced to the private equity environment down here. And uh, I guess it's uh, over 10 years ago, almost 15 years ago, left uh, Rockwell Automation and uh, went into private equity software technology focused. So I got my software DNA initially from my experience at Rockwell Automation. And the last uh, 12 years, I've been focused at private equity solely on software and technology. And um, Epicor is the fourth company I've had the, the privilege to be with. It was with Mitra Tech, which was a legal management company. I was with Lithium, which was a customer care company. And in Lithium, we merged and we became a Coros, which was customer care and marketing. And I had the privilege a couple of years ago to come back to my roots. My roots really are, you know, in the industrials, you know, complemented with software. So when the Epicor opportunity was here, it was a natural fit. It really leveraged off the first part of my career and then allowed me to index my understanding experience within software itself. And I, I couldn't be happier than the last couple of years of what I've been able to experience, what I've been a, uh, been allowed to be a part of here at Epicor. And it's uh, just been a great experience. It's kind of the best of both worlds. I'm a real big believer in uh, the make, move, sell economy, production, right. distribution, and selling. But I'm as big a believer in critical software that allows that to succeed. So that that's kind of a little bio of who I am and where I came from. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I want to come back to the build, buy, make, move uh, philosophy here in just a second. I want to come back to that point. So hold that thought. Um, but I guess just real quickly before I go there, um, how did you, you, you alluded to this a little bit, but how was that transition going from being in industry, even though it was tech related and you're, you're on sort of the technology side of, of industry, but now you're full on working for a software company now and, and have been for several years, but how was that transition and, and how did you make that transition from industry into working for a tech company? Was it pretty natural or, or how, how was it different? You know, I, I think I think one of my own personal assets is I'm I'm pretty uh, adaptable person. So I think that helped. Uh, the good the adjustment in the positive stance is going from public to private is the flexibility in private to really be a change agent. You can get things done in a public company, but it takes immensely longer, and you can do it quicker, <clears throat> more efficiently, and with more impact in a private environment. And in software, <clears throat> it allowed me to really see the value of recurring revenue. And then you go back into industry and they have to work hard. You've got to replace the selling of widgets every year effectively. So if you sold a million that year, you may have to sell a million point one. Software allows you to build long-term annuity type of, of value from a financial perspective. But then also I think software becomes more customer centric because you have this contract, this agreement to be there not for one year, but for 10, 15, 20 years. So I think it causes you to have to index on your relationship with your customers for the long term. So I think that that's what I did have to adjust to is the financial model is different. And that financial model plays into the customer centricity. Right, right. And that'll be one of my first uh, meaty questions for you is just describing what customer centricity is. But um, yeah. what about this? This, And I, I apologize. I know I'm probably butchering what you said as far as was it build, buy, make, move, maybe explain that, whatever I just butchered, maybe explain what that is and what it means to Epicor. Yeah, no, great, Eric. Uh, so we've spent a lot of time always thinking about who we are and that can be captured in a mission statement. So when I think about the mission statement of Epicor, our mission statement is Epicor is the essential 
partner to the world's most essential businesses. And we're providing a digital foundation that powers the growth of the global make, move, and sell economy. And the make, move, and sell economy is what we pride ourselves on, our eloquent way of saying the supply chain. So we have customers that make things, we have customers that move things, and we have customers that sell things. And changing in this environment, we have customers within that supply chain, make, move, and sell, that are starting to make and move, or move and make, or move and sell. So you're seeing kind of the bifurcation of the, the supply chain, you're seeing kind of a coalition of it. But the make, move, sell is, that's our definition of the supply chain, and our customers are supply chain centric. Yeah, it's a good reminder that ERP systems and technology in general should serve a broader purpose other than just automating for automation's sake. It's about, you know, like you said, filling those critical functions for critical essential businesses. And I think that's a, a good reminder of where the focus should be on, on these sort of technology initiatives. Um, what about when you talk about customer centricity then, and that's really the whole thread we're going to dive into here. Maybe just let's just start off with the basics here. What, what does it mean to have a customer centric strategy or to be customer centric or to build software? deploy software that is customer centric. What does that, what does that mean to you? Uh, you know, what it means to me, you know, within the seat I sit is when I think about the customer, I th one is it gets back to the financial model. We're selling a SaaS or a cloud agreement. You know, these are five-year contracts. So it's not like after the sales process, you deliver them a quality product and you leave. And then you hope that they buy from you a couple of years from later because you've delivered a quality product. That customer centricity is once you hand that off and your engineers start implementing that software, you better have best in class support because the customer is going to have needs throughout the 24 seven day. Mm -hmm. You better have uh, engineers that implement it very well so that the software can do everything it can. You better have a software that's agile, meaning that as you develop or buy technology that you can insert in modules, they can get a hold of that technology in a seamless way. So it gets back to a CFO. I always tell our, our employee base, we invest back into Epicor aggressively and we invest in this order. And it's not because the customers last, but because it impacts the customer the best. We invest in people first, we're a software company, product, then customer. And it's not that customers last, we actually are investing everything in the customer because by having the best people, we develop the best products, which service the customers the best. And I think right. that's how I think about the relationship is a car company wants to build a good car that you and I as drivers, it's reliable, it's comfortable, it serves us well in the five years we have it per se. And then that hopefully gets them to sale five years later. Software company can't just deliver a well-built car. It's got to build, deliver a well-built car that continues to become, you know, maybe... Maybe you bought an economy car that becomes a sedan, that becomes an SUV, that comes an over-the-road semi. Like right. you have to have that adaptability, flexibility, and that's how I think about uh, the customer centricity. It's it's anchored in the financial model of software that holds you accountable for being there in that customer's journey, the life of the customer. And if you're a critical software company, you should be targeting that your relationships are no less than twenty years. When you're mission critical software. If that customer stays financially viable, this needs to be a, a multi-decade decade journey if you're really being forward thinking and you're really leaning into that relationship. And I would say Epicor original customers, they're all north of 20 years. We have newer customers because we've acquired businesses and we keep winning deals. 
but that that's how I think about it, Eric. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes makes total sense. And and you've been at a few different software companies now. And and what do you see Epicor doing in the market? Just as examples or maybe categories of of innovation that focuses on customer centricity. Like, what are some of the initiatives you guys focus on internally as you're developing your people, your product, and then ultimately your customers? What are you doing, you know, with the software to make it more customer centric? You know, I really appreciate that question. Epicor is a 50 year old uh, company. It is showing, like, I pride myself on adaptability. It's showing that same adaptability. You know, in a football analogy, is the team that makes the halftime adjustment always wins. Anybody that watched the Super Bowl who made the halftime adjustment, it was the Kansas City Chiefs, and they won. Um, I see, I've seen at Epicor that adaptability. If you go back four or five years, Epicor made the commitment that they are going to be a cloud-based company. And a lot of companies will say that, and it, it's a lot of marketing language put out. Epicor leaned in over $800 million of investment in the last four or five years to actually take its great on-prem products and make them cloud ready. And our customers are seeing that now because if you see our migration to cloud, the rate that we're actually growing our cloud bookings reinforces that one, from a technology perspective, we made that commitment and upheld to it. From the people perspective is we are committed to whether it's benefits, whether it's career opportunities, whether how we recruit in a very diverse environment, meaning that we throw out a wide net to make sure we get the people with the highest aptitude and attitude. And the fact that we are a true global company, we leverage off of the best talent that we can find globally. So I would say what I've seen at Epicor that I think is unique to a lot of companies is they make the halftime adjustment. They invested in cloud. That cloud investment is taking hold, but we're not stopping there. Now we start thinking about what is data what is predictive analytics? How can we continue to grow the original ERP story to a point that becomes more of a proactive asset for our customers so that they can really be predictive in the market, reduce costs, be as efficient as possible and can expand. We can scale with them. They can scale as large as they want to be and we can scale with them. So I, I would say that's what I've seen as I've read the history and I've watched what's happened here the last two years. And then I see the financial results. The financial results are the scoreboard and you know what's the old statement the scoreboard doesn't lie and our right. scoreboard's not lying the customers are rewarding us you know financially because we've held to our commitments but we've, we're showing that adaptability and that's not easy especially when you get to cut companies as old as we are you can kind of get ground and rooted into behaviors that maybe don't age that well and i don't mm -hmm. think epicor is doing that yeah yeah, which would be easy to do if you think about it, because you've been around for so long and you've acquired all these different companies that have, legacy companies that have been around for a while. So that's that's uh, uh, kudos to you guys for the, in the leadership team for for taking it that direction. We're here with Sam Monty from Epicor Software talking about customer centric digital transformation strategies. We've got a lot more to cover in this conversation, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening into Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, 
or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 109. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here chatting with Sam Monty from Epicor Software, talking about customer-centric digital transformation strategies. Questions and comments that have, that have come up so far. Uh, one is from, from Ajay uh, on LinkedIn, who says, Hey, Eric, you're doing great for digital transformation, but don't restrict yourself to ERP selling only. So I just want to bring that up and thank you for the comment and the feedback. Um, I don't sell software, just to be clear. Um, I don't sell anything related to ERP, but I like talking about it um, because we advise our clients on it. Um, that's why I have the, the real ERP experts like Sam on the show because he actually works for a, an ERP software company. So I uh, appreciate that feedback. And then a, a question here from, from Kyler is, is how do organizations become more customer focused? I assume that's an investment in a culture shift. And I, and I guess maybe we could take it from the perspective of not only maybe what you're doing at Epicor to become more customer centric, but maybe how you see your customers becoming more customer centric and how do you get them to, how do you get them to focus on that customer centricity versus I'm just going to automate my back office functions just because I need to, you know, how do you, how do you make that shift in thinking? Yeah, there's a, it's a good question. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of avenues of how you make it successful. Like within the organization itself, I think the question tapped onto, you have to have a cultural change, meaning that you have to have leaders that, really become evangelists of how you're thinking about the, the the company, meaning that starts with transparency at the employee level. And we're very transparent about here's who we are, here's where we came from, here's where we're going. And to get there, this is where how we're investing and what we expect out of the employees and the kind of talent we're bringing into the company because we have this talent already, we need this talent to make sure that we're, you know, quote unquote, Epicor 2.0. So I think you start first with leadership within the company about, Transparency is game number one. This is where we're going. You communicate the entire employee staff. This is our strategy and why we're doing it. And then you execute to it, meaning that what you expect out of the employees, you hold to that and you reward it. You reward the behavior. So I think you change the cultural stance with a sense of transparency. And then that, that has all avenues and people rally around that when they know that they're being communicated to in a transparent, honest manner. And it doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes but you own them and you move on from them, people rally to that. They want it to succeed. The other thing internally too is it's very hard, but try to streamline targets to a simplistic manner. Try to find North stars. Don't have 10 objectives. Don't have more than three. Try to find one. Like internally, we have one internal uh, financial North star here that the whole company understands and can rally to. And I think that's how you have to think about everything. Boil it down to an achievable target. Define success and make that sex 
success achievable, but with effort. So I would do that internally. Then externally, the customer journey is important too, is you have got to be out there with the customers, whether it's shows that you have, engagements that you have with the executives, you've got to tell them where you're going and why you're going there. And you have to get them to believe in it, but they have to be a partner in it too. Epicor, because I want to get back to something else that first statement said before the question. Epicor is 50 years old. We have customers that are invested in us as much as we're invested in them and that they understand what our system is. You've got to give them a seat at the table because sometimes they know the product better than you do. So you have to give them a seat at the table of, hey, we are going to cloud for these reasons. And this is why it helps you. And what does your product do now? What does your product do now that's critical? That is a showstopper that has to happen in cloud. That's an example. So I think to make that transformation, it's both internal, and external. Culturally, you better have the right tone. You better be transparent and honest. Outside, it's the same thing. You better be transparent with your customers and you better bring them along within the ride. You not dictate to them, bring them along in the ride. And you, have, you need to have patience with it too. Cloud's an example. We do not force anybody onto cloud. We have not sunsetted products that aren't cloud to force them into that. We are with our customers. And when it's ready for them financially or ready for them culturally, then we're ready to provide them the cloud experience. So I would say, how do you make it work? You go beyond the traditional ERP, which gets back to that first statement, Eric. Right. Yes, we, we've grown up as an ERP company, very focused in critical verticals. And we have more vertical expertise than anybody within supply chain. We are not running from what ERP is, but like that statement said, we are not our grandparents' ERP, meaning that we are built off of the DNA of ERP and we'll never run away from that because of the mission critical sense of it. But we are becoming ERP 2.3.0, meaning that we are very inquisitive about data and the digital foundation and the digital transformation. We are very inquisitive about things like business intelligence and predictive analytics. That is what the evolution of ERP is. We may not call it ERP in the future, but let's be honest, it's all built on the ERP that what our grandparents established. So we don't run from it, but we are forward looking. That statement is absolutely true. If you aren't looking at what I said, digital transformation based on a digital foundation, looking at data, looking at predictive analytics, then you will become antiquated. So I, I wanted to make sure I got back to that statement. We are focused on selling more than what that what the audience said was just ERP. Yeah. Yeah, great point. And, and there's so much in what you just said that is worth emphasizing. I mean, you, you mentioned leadership and how there has to be a clear vision and direction for the transfer for a transformation. And I think that's where a lot of companies miss have a, their first big misstep in it in an ERP project or a digital transformation is they don't have that clear vision, that North Star that you mentioned. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is that future state we're trying to get to, rather than just sort of relegating or delegating the project to a project team to say, just go go automate our back office systems and because we have, we have to replace it. We've the products being sunset. So now we need to replace it. So just go, go replace it. That's not enough of a North star to say, this is our intent and this is what's going to guide us throughout the, the whole project. And you mentioned that customer journey being that potential North star of, you know, using that as a way to really look at how are we servicing our customers today? What are our strengths that we want to preserve? And then what could we be doing better to provide a better customer journey? And then ultimately how can we use technology to help us get there? And I think that, piece right there gets missed a lot by by more organizations than than I would like to admit. What are your thoughts there? Do you, do you see companies that struggle with that or is it hard for you guys as a, as a yeah. software seller to convince companies that you need to do that and you need to take advantage of some of these new technologies and new potential ways of doing business? You know, 
we're we're not having as much trouble maybe as some do is because we get back to we have fostered these relationships we have customers that they know their sales rep and their support rep for for a decade plus so they they trust what they're saying but it, it anchors back into internally what we've touched on it's very hard companies and individuals get very uncomfortable with transparency and i go back to something some people on this uh uh live stream may understand it or not the cover-up's always worse than the crime. It's an old statement from the Watergate-Nixon era. And what companies need to understand is transparency may feel uncomfortable at first, but once you start executing to it culturally, internally, and then with the customers, it actually becomes your greatest asset because people are very forgiving people. If you're very transparent and when there's bad news early is good news, you take them on that journey. So number one, you've got to establish that culturally. You've got to start sharing with your employees and then extend that to the customers. But from there, that makes it an easier story in that we drink our own champagne. Like we have established a business intelligence organization within Epicor. We're doing all the same things we're recommending to our customers. That we're bullet, pulling down critical performance indicators within our BI team that's giving us predictive analytics of what's happening in our own ecosystem. And it becomes an easy story to tell when customers know our, the ERP we sell in manufacturing, I use to run this company. When I talk about business intelligence, I, I drink my own champagne. We live by it. We drive analytics out of it. When we start talking about predictive analytics, guess who's using predictive analytics? We are. So I think we're having a less difficult time to sell than others because, number one, we have the long-term relationship. But number two is we're acting with a sense of transparency. And then number three is we're drinking our own champagne. We're, we're engaging in all the same practices that are going to make us relevant for the next few decades. Mm. So I, I, I would say that's how we're doing it. Because then you can get into things that are table stakes. Cloud, like cloud, for example, why are you on it? There is a cybersecurity element you cannot ignore. And the analogy I always use is to the human being, on-prem seems safer, but the on-prem is like having a good safe in your house. Being in the cloud within a provider like Azure, AWS, is like having Fort Knox. It doesn't seem intuitive to people, but it's the truth. So you get into things like that, that are table stakes of why you go cloud, cybersecurity, agility, adaptability, access to technology faster. But I think it all starts with that cultural conversation, Eric, that right. who are you as a company and what is your relationship with the customer as a company? And it's gotta be transparent. It's gotta be honest. Doesn't mean, both parties are going to always like what they hear, but they're going to know it's the truth. And I think right. that allows for confidence going forward on when you recommend why you're upselling, why they should expand, why they should invest more into you. So I, I, yeah. I, I'm biased. That's where, that's how I think you do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Great points. And, um, Rohit on LinkedIn says that customers need to understand change management. I think that's a great point that sort of highlights or underscores your point here, which is, for a lot of organizations that aren't used to thinking this way about the customer journey and, and the customer centricity that we're talking about, it does entail a cultural shift that requires sort of a change management, strong leadership, strong communication, the transparency, all the stuff you just talked about as more of a formalized change program that that could be a way to help bend that culture to be more focused in that way too. Um, what about this? Here's a, here's an interesting question. A couple interesting ones that have come in from the audience here. This is from uh, YouTube. Um, an account called Affiliates Corner asked the question of how to compete. How do you compete if you're a smaller firm 
when resources are so important to results and larger companies can point to a deeper pool. Um, so I, I guess this kind of gets to the whole agility. Um, you know, if you're in the small or mid market, how do you, how do you accomplish all the stuff that you're talking about when you don't have the depth of resources and the breadth of resources potentially at your disposal that a, that a larger company might. You know, some of it is not to be dismissive of is first, you got to understand who you are and who you're competing with. An example, an example we have is Epicor services, the SMB industry. We do not have a false strategy of we're going up market, but we've been winning up market organically because we get back to, we're focused, a small company focused on who is your customer base, what region, geography, or industry you're serving and, and execute on that. Do not get distracted by the 400 pound gorilla in the room that's going to come in and, and win. What we've learned is since we stay focused, hyper-focused on the verticals we grew up in, in the SMB area and the regions that we know, the bigger, bigger players try to come down with us and they lose every time because we don't get distracted by who they are. We stay focused on what we're trying to do. So I think a small one that a smaller company that has limited resources needs to leverage the technology they have as much as they can to gain the, gain the efficiencies to invest, but stay hyper-focused every day on who are you, who do you serve, what region are you in? The other stuff will take care of its, its, its self organically. Uh, Eric, I'm a big fan of boxing and I love boxing history. And there's an old statement. If you go into a fight looking for a knockout, you will get knocked out. If you go into a fight and you execute your strategy, you are likely to knock out the opponent. It's the same thing. That stay focused on who you are, the customers you serve, focus the investment on that. Leverage technology to gain dollar bandwidth, cash flow bandwidth, so that you can expand and grow more, whether it's better people, whether it's better equipment, et cetera. I think you have to stay focused on that. Be realistic to the threats out there from the bigger ones, but don't get over swallowed by, we have a big budget, Eric, but my budget is not that big when I think about some of the names not to be mentioned. Right. And it doesn't distract us from one minute when you look at the growth and what we're doing, because we know who we are and we know who we serve. And I would recommend that to any know who you are, know who you serve and make sure who you serve knows that that that's how yeah. you do stay focused on who you are. Yeah. And the good thing about being a smaller mid market company is that you have more options. I mean, I feel like small and mid market companies have more viable options in the market in some ways because you don't necessarily need the big, massive you know, SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, even though you didn't want me to mention them by name, um, <laughs> but you don't necessarily need them. You can go find a targeted solution, like in one of the Epicor products that focuses on uh, a certain vertical or a certain function. And there's others out there too. There's a lot of uh, kind of mid-tier solutions that, that can do that. So I think that's a, a really good point. Um, yeah, you know, Eric, you leveraged off too, is I love our customer base in SMB. I'm biased about it. I love history. I love how things work. SMB is 80% of the economy. Yeah. Whatever, whatever free trade country you go to, like it's not the big names we all think of. They're less than 20 percent of the U.S. economy, North America, Europe, et cetera. The SMB yeah. is where the real working man and woman is. It's it's who's actually moving the economy. And that's why we were serving the essential businesses. And, look, for example, during covid, none of our customer, none of our customers shut down. They were considered essential because they actually were moving the goods that allowed all of us to adapt to whatever regulations there were. And that's why I'm very biased in it. It gets back to that first question. I, I'm, I'm proud that we serve SMB. I, I think that's where smart money is. And I think that's where smart business is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Now, here's sort of a, a trend-based question from Ryan on LinkedIn. And I love this question. I'm going to have to hide it to read the whole thing, but I'll, I'll start it here. Um, Ryan on LinkedIn says, speaking of the future, AI has been all over the news lately with programs like chat, GPT, and likewise. How do you see ERP systems evolving in a future that may require less human power from your customers and potentially more AI automations? And he goes on to say, and you can't see it on the screen here, or have I been watching too much Terminator? <laughs> so <laughs> I know. I know, right, Ryan? It, it all starts reflecting the first two Terminators, the real ones. Um, right. Here's how we think about it. AI, to say AI machine learning is not relevant, of course it's relevant. Here's how we're adapting it with an ERP. It's starting with the data and it's why we're inquisitive in business intelligence. And we, you know, we personally are sitting on Mount Everest of data. So I think how AI will impact ERP and machine learning will be who monetizes the immense amount of data the best, meaning that with companies like ours find a way through the, the digital transformation, the data is all out there. How does it start playing initially with your business intelligence technology? Our business intelligence builds off predictive analytics that we're working on, but if, if the predictive analytics are only going to be as good as how much data the machine and the, the coding has to work with. So I think ERP is going to get influenced by AI, ML, whatever the flavor of the, the month is, the technology, by who manages the data the best and allows the customer to see the, the efficiencies they gain from that. And that's how I think ERP is going to transform. Effectively, we're going to have a, we have a business intelligence tool. When it starts pulling from a repository of tera, tera, terabytes of data, what can that distribution center in Columbus, Ohio predict using all that data on the flow of goods? What can U.S. lumber predict on how much lumber it wants to produce and push out there? What can a steel manufacturer do? That's how I think ERP is really going to leverage off technology. And that's why we're built off ERP, but ERP 2.0, 3.0 is going to have to have that predictive analytics aspect, I think, which is going to leverage off AI, machine learning. But it's only going to be relevant if there's a wealth of data to pull from. Because you could have the greatest code ever, but if it's pulling from a repository of no data, what does that code actually do? Right. That that's how look at that's how this CFO sees it. Right. No, it's a great, great point. We're here with Sam Monty from Epicor Software talking about customer-centric digital transformation strategies. We've got a lot more to cover in this conversation, but first we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening into Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 109. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. We're here chatting with Sam Monty from Epicor Software, talking about customer-centric digital transformation strategies. Um, and then this is sort of building back on the previous thread about the small and, and mid-sized market. And I'll, I'll flip this into a question. It's a comment from Mohammed on LinkedIn. And he says, our, our organization is going through digital transformation from legacy system to in 4M3. The more configuration changes for small companies is taking more time, money, and confidence. So I guess just to maybe turn that into a question, do you see technology in general becoming more complex? I mean, there's more business value, pre presumably, or, or potentially. Um, but is at the same time, and back to Ryan's question about chat GPT and AI and all that stuff, is it is it getting too complex in some ways for, for small and mid-market companies or organizations in general? Or do you think organizations are figuring out how to adapt to some of those technological advances? Yeah, I, I don't. I think it's it's all how the user is using it. And I think what we're seeing, why have ERP implementations have such a bad reputation and take forever and that it, it comes from one you're either working with somebody's code that just needs a ton of professional services but more more times than not these projects are bogged down because people allow the introduction of customization i've been a part of three business operational standard solution overturns at companies and we've had to do them because they've had the right vendors the execution of it was wrong the architecture of what they were trying to do is wrong. And then they let everybody have their customization in. You've got to try to, number one, you start with as much of the project needs to be done out of the box. You need to be willing to give away some customization. If you don't, technology will drown you. It will come inefficient. Project will, will bleed you from the uh, integration. And the thing, and the thing doesn't become scalable or sustainable. You get to a very customized, it could be an off the shelf known. It gets so customized. It might as well have been a third party, like bespoke programmed, a program that was built by engineers on site. Right. What I've learned in all these cases is we stay very rigorous. We're doing it here right now. We stay very rigorous about customization being allowed into the process. We don't allow it. And then on top of it, when you do these projects, you have to have the functional or operational owners, the end users of that. They have to be in the project defining what they want it to do and look like. And then they have to be controlled from customizing it. If you do not do that, technology, even from the 80s, will overrun a company. So it's not because our stuff is shinier and better and thinks faster. It's really the discipline of how you project manage. And I would right. just say, word to the wise, reduce the customizations. These are not hills to die on. People get emotional about them. But when you really drive down to it, they don't, there's other ways to do it that are usually right out of the box. Uh, that would be my, my, my two cents worth of how you control it. But I've lived through three of them and that's why we've been successful. Functional operational owners minimized uh, customization to almost zero. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it gets back to the point that one of the audience members mentioned about change management. If you don't manage change well, you're going to see more attempts to customize the software. It's usually a symptom of, of resistance to change. Often, oftentimes, or, or sometimes I should say, there is a legitimate need to customize, and it, it, but that should be more of an exception. It's when yeah. you, like you said, when you start to over-customize, it's usually not because the software isn't working the way it should or doesn't work. It's because your people are resisting the change and, and they're not used to it. It doesn't look like the way I do things today, so therefore I want to change it to look like the way I do things today. 
No, well, well said, Eric. Because you, you know, you run into people that grown up have grown up as knowledge columns and pillars, and then they start becoming knowledge experts, and they unintentionally become knowledge terrorists. <laughs> I mean, if if they win the lottery tomorrow, your company's in a lot of hurt because all this knowledge is in here, and that's that's you'll find the human characteristic. Those become the customization evangelists, and you've got to right. like. You've got to get them comfortable that you're moving to something and we expect them to be the knowledge experts on this new thing. We are not customizing. Right. I love that term. Can I borrow that from you? Knowledge terrorist. I, yeah. I think I'm going to start using that. And they weaponize information. They weaponize data. <laughs> yeah. And hold it hostage. You know, I've got all this tribal knowledge in my head. I'm not giving yeah. it up, you know, because it, yeah. it threatens my job or it threatens my, my job security. And that's um, where the transparency always plays in people. Humans are just humans are good people. If, you're transparent with them. You can get them past that. And then they become an unbelievable asset in the journey. Yeah. So with software in general, and as well as Epicor software specifically, um, what are some of the ways that you see manufacturing and distribution types of organizations and other essential businesses in, in the world economy? How are, what are they doing to become more customer centric? Like what are some of the technologies or functions that they they might be using and, and just to give you an example of, of one that i know is a strength of, of epicor's products is when you think about that product configuration function that you guys have and you know a, a smaller subset of software vendors provide really good uh product configuration capabilities to help sales reps to go out and sell offerings that make sense and can actually flow into manufacturing and give you a, a, an accurate estimate process up front and that's very customer facing and that's to me, that that's sort of a function or a capability that you can build within an organization to, to have sort of a tangible impact on being customer centric. But what are some, you know, what are some ways that you're seeing manufacturing or just organizations in general become more customer centric? What, what sorts of capabilities or technology functions are they deploying? Yeah, what I'm what I'm seeing is, and it's not to, there are there are some good things that came out of COVID. And I know that sounds <laughs> you know sacrilegious. The supply chain got a wake up call and basic supply chain 101 is you don't single source your supply chain. Well, guess what? The world was single sourcing and we all yeah. learned a really hard lesson. So what I, what we're, what we're seeing happen from a macro standpoint is the regionalization of supply chains, which I'm biased is a best practice in supply chains. It makes mm -hmm. South America better, the U S Canada, Europe better. Um, and it makes supply chains more efficient. So we're seeing a couple of things happen we're seeing, our customers adjusting to the supply chain constraints we saw out of COVID, and they're getting more thoughtful about where are their physical assets and locations. Within that, they're having to leverage off, like you said, product configurators, et cetera. They're having to leverage off technology such as Epicor to understand who's on first, what's on second. So I'm seeing number one, an onshore and regionalization of supply chains to kind of address what happened during COVID. But then from there, they can sell more efficiently. They can say, you know, it's, it, it'll help them uh, work against inflation, et cetera, some other issues. We are seeing them embrace technology at an accelerated rate, meaning migrating to SaaS is accelerating at 2x what it was before COVID for us. And the reason they're doing that is they're seeing technology about what is the supply, what does the product configurator do within the cloud environment now that they've also offered a business intelligence product. They've now offered, if you're in manufacturing, a configured product and quote product. 
we're seeing the customers embrace technology a lot quicker. And I think a lot of it comes out of what we learned in COVID. They're being forced into regionalization and it's not just business as you do lately, but they're also, we are getting a lot of questions. For example, we acquired Grow and it's our future of business intelligence. We're getting a lot of questions. When is it going to be ready? So like we're launching an integrated version into our dis distribution product and right after that into our kinetic manufacturing product to show you that my thesis is right about the regionalization and the embrace of technology. They are knocking down our door about when can I have screens up in my factory or distribution center that put out of the box business intelligence cards from your product that allow me to move or make goods faster. So what, what, what I'm seeing is even when the economy gets softer, we haven't seen a slowdown in pipeline because customers are working through backlog. They're also transforming who they are from a geographic landscape. And they're also using this time to re to introduce new technology. So I'm seeing an embrace of technology to address all those issues. And then from the macro standpoint, we're on the favorable side of the uh, what I see occurring, the regionalization of supply chain demand. And then finally within there, these customers, I, I hinted to it later, they're looking at other ways to make money and manufacturers are starting to distribute. Manufacturers are starting to sell private label. Mm -hmm. Distributors are deciding to go into some private label manufacturing. We are seeing a blending of what's happening from that make, move and sell economy that where you have manufactured distro, et cetera. So if you have that, you better have an ERP that's scalable and sustainable. You know, my, my sales pitch here is, Hey, who's grown up in the make, move, and sell economy in your verticals? Well, Epicor has. We can make things for you. Oh, you want to distribute them? Well, we've been doing distribution for 50 years too. So we're seeing it across the boards. Management's getting very adept at adjusting to what's happened in the environment, and they're not turning around. Just because things have calmed down, I think people have learned their lesson. They're never going back to it. Yeah, it's a great point. And you, it, it gets back to your earlier point about you want – to buy technology that you can, I think you said something along the lines of you could start off it being more of a sedan and then it evolves into a, you know, a, a bigger sedan and then an SUV and then a, a semi. So, you know, you need with the world changing as fast as it is as a result of COVID and more vertical integration and regionalization of supply chains and a lot of the stuff you're talking about, you need technology that can roll with the punches and that you know you can grow into and evolve with. And I think that's a really good point. Another piece of customer centricity though, if we talk about specific technologies is CRM. So if you look at customer relationship management and Salesforce automation, um, that's another technology that's very customer facing. And oftentimes that's the first uh, experience that a customer has with your organization. And I know that you guys at Epicor have recently built a partnership with Salesforce, which is a, which is a leading CRM provider, um, obviously focused on customer centric customer experience and as well as sales and, and general CRM. But tell us about this partnership between Epicor and Salesforce. Why, you know, why did you guys do it? And then what does it mean to your customers and, and their digital transformations? No, absolutely. Uh, Salesforce, my perspective, phenomenal partner in the sales process. And the reason I say that is second to none, there is only one CRM product. In my mind, in my world, there's only one and it's Salesforce. And the reason I say that is, and I'm really sensitive about it with an SMB because you get into SMB, and if a customer, not all customers require a CRM, but most do. I think a lot of people in SMB think about Salesforce and they think too much car. It's not. That Salesforce as a product, I start with why we have the relationship, scales up and down, very agile. 
it can do for small what it does for enterprise. It's just you're you're buying a different you're buying a different car. So it does flex up and down. We wouldn't be on the journey with them if we thought it was going to hurt our customers in the SMB. It will help them. We use Salesforce as a CRM, and quite honestly, we're re-implementing it now as part of what I was telling you about. How do you implement products? Hmm. The reason it's critical and the reason they're important, we get around the data. And you talk about CRM being done right. You talk about a data repository that any we want any of our customers to have. You now know where all your customers are, who they are, what's up for renewal, what are their pain pressures, what's their customer rating. So I see Salesforce as a very valuable partner in this journey because it does scale, like I said. But when you get into the technology aspect of it, when you implement Salesforce correctly, just like when you implement us correctly, you have a tool that is a game changer. I've used it at three software companies. It has changed how we have sold and has changed the value recognition and it has improved the, the bandwidth of the sales and marketing team. And it has allowed like marketing, for example, to get hyper aggressive about pipeline fulfillment. That's why they're in the journey with us. When you want CRM, people think about CRM. I think they think about it the wrong way. CRM really needs to be how you manage the customer's life through the entire journey with your, with your company, which means you better have a lot of data and that data better be very accessible, intuitive to the people that use it. So I go into SMB. I am a big proponent of if you need CRM, there's only one choice. It is our partner. It is Salesforce and Salesforce plays brilliantly with our ERP technology offerings. But I would get back to that, even forget us as you know collaborative here for a second. You need it because you need to manage the customer relationship journey of all your customers, just like you need to manage the data relationship of all your production, distribution and selling. You can't do that if you don't have a world class CRM product. Salesforce is the world class CRM product. It'll make your salespeople better. It'll make your business development reps better. It'll give your data when you're in renewals or discussions with customers, you will be more in time. So you, they don't feel like you don't even know who they are. That's why they're a logical par partner in this journey. That the CRM, I, I don't know how you can be successful without world-class CRM and world-class ERP. And then they come together, they both are feeding data, which gets back to that question, AI, ML. You wanna talk about another data repository. If you have the whole sales customer relationship journey of your customers on top of how things are made and move and sold, then you have all the data you're ever going to need. Now, how are you using it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense. And, uh, the, uh, follow-up question here, which I, I love because it opens up another Pandora's box or another can of worms, depending how you look at it, but that it's sort of the best of breed versus single ERP debate or, uh, discussion. And this is from Kyler on LinkedIn. Who's, uh, part of the third stage team and also my podcast co-host. So she has a different perspective here and her, her perspective is interesting leveraging an existing CRM software like Salesforce. We often see vendors try to build their own and trap customers into a bundle. And, and I want to, I think this is a really interesting point and question for you uh, because it, it does point to the fact of when you're defining your digital strategy, oftentimes you have to make trade-offs. You have to decide, do I want do I really want a single integrated ERP system that does everything I need just straight out of the box, same vendor, same product or whatever, knowing that I'm potentially going to water down some functions like potentially CRM as an example, or 
do I trade that off and say, I'm going to provide a better customer experience with a, with a world-class CRM, uh, someone that presumably has done it better, you know, Salesforce has created a CRM system better than most ERP vendors, I'd argue, and that's why they're successful, is because they really focused on CRM to start and they, they made a better mousetrap than what ERP vendors could. But now you've shifted some risk now and said, well, it's a little bit more technical complexity now. Now you've got two systems, you've got to tie it together. And you mentioned that Salesforce integrates uh, brilliantly with Epicor. And today's integration tools, I think, do make it easier to integrate multiple systems in general. So it's not as bad as it was 10 or 20 years ago, but it still raises the question of, is it better to have a single ERP system that fully integrated, or do you want to have that best of breed, best in class sort of model to where you can provide a best or better customer experience? And how do you, how do you recommend organizations navigate that trade-off or what, what would your advice be to them as they try to think through that decision yeah. process? No, Kyler, I appreciate it. That's a, that's a great question. And I have a real strong conviction on it. It goes, my father was an Air Force officer for 30 years and I love planes and I grew up around them. And the one thing you learn is just go look at when the US government tried to build one plane that did everything and look at what that plane was. Like it's a disaster, right? right? And, <laughs> and I look at ERP the same way. When somebody tells you you can do everything, it's a fool's errand. It gets back to that question of small to large, know who you are. We are best in breed provider of ERP with the, with the digital foundation. And knowing that is when I was at Rockwell, they went through a massive ERP implementation and it took longer than it should have. And it cost three times more than it should have. Mm -hmm. And um, when they were done, they had this, they had a real strict rule. Nothing is to be used except for everything, except the ERP provider. So if you need CRM or if you need professional services, I was down in the software division. We weren't doing that. We were, for example, our professional services, we were using open air and our CRM, we were using Salesforce. The rest of the company started seeing like our CRM system and the sales team started screaming, why don't I have that? And Rockwell learned a lesson. Best in breed is how you win. Centered around the ERP, you build an ecosystem. And it doesn't mean you just add on en endlessly. You have to have a rationale why it is really better than what the ERP may offer. If you mm -hmm. build best in breed around ERP, you are maximizing the efficiency of the organization. And we know who we are. There's a lot of functionality. You should stay with Epicor. Best in breed for a CRM system, for the scale of what our customers are looking for, it is Salesforce. It's not us. We know who we are. We're, we're the, we're the software that is running the company, but I'm not the software that's going to manage the customer relationship. Our customer has with their customers optimally it's best in breed is instead of trying to build the plane that does everything, you build the best air superiority fighter, or you build the best bomber. You don't build this plane does everything bad. Right. Right. Or yeah, I think, or, I think it's in that analogy in that, we integrate well with best in breed, but don't fool, don't be fooled by us. We are best in breed in the things that are critical to running the company, whether you're a manufacturer, distributor, or seller. Right. And it gets back to what you said before about customization and what we were talking about, how when you customize, there might be some customization that's critical and there might be some customization that's more of a symptom of resistance to change. And I would say the same can be true or be said of best of breed in that, Salesforce, for example, might be a, a viable strategic option to deploy as a best of breed CRM solution that does CRM better than ERP systems. But 
there might be other examples in an organization where it's not necessarily that that best of breed does things materially better. It's just you're resisting the change. You're resisting that core ERP system. The organization's resisting it or part of the organization's resisting it. So they want to go off and get their own technology for HR or um, supply chain or, or whatever, you know, whatever function it is. And that you have to watch that. You have to know back to your earlier point about leadership and having that guiding star, that North Star. You have to have that clear vision and strategy of what it is you're trying to accomplish so that you can navigate those sorts of decisions because you'll inevitably have people that want to over customize or want to have another bolt on that you don't need. And so I think that's a, that's the tricky part that a lot of people struggle with. There's lo- they're looking for an easy answer of either or either it's single system or it's best of breed. There's no in between, but there is an in between. And I think that's what you're saying. That's absolutely it. And look, at we, we even live by it. When we implemented Salesforce for our CRM, does Salesforce by default get everything in CRM? No, but it, it, we will do a best in breed on top of them if we have to, but it's got to get past that threshold. If, if Salesforce does 80% or more of what I need that function or, or module to do, then you stay with it. And it's the same with your ERP system. If they do it, the, the rule is if they do it 80% as good or or more as the best specific, you know, caveat provider, then you stay in-house. You, re, mm-hmm. you avoid the customization and 80% is good enough. But to get best in breed, some of those things, <clears throat> is there another CRM product that does Salesforce at 80% as good in most situations? No. Right. And th- like I said, is there somebody that does ERP 80% as good as us or better? No. And that's why you co with the best in breed. But my view of the ecosystem, the old Steve Jobs view is the son of the universe is your ERP. And then around that are the planets. And you do the best in breed around that. And some of those best in breeds will actually be stuff that your ERP company does own or did create. And then other planets are going to be inorganic. They're going to be other best in breed practices. And that I kind of look at it like that from like an ecosystem. Start with the ERP, go best in breed. But like you said, be disciplined. If they're just doing it because they have a non-defensible customization, then you don't do it. Right. Right. And you, you know, that's where the business case comes into, you know, if you're, if you're going to invest a little bit extra for best of breed is, is it delivering enough business value to justify that added cost, that added risk, the added complexity of having a, a bolt on. So I think that's, and it, I think there's too much hyperbole in the market today to where you have, uh, you have people that have they've dug in their heels on a certain position that single ARP system is good or see single ARP system is bad. It's either good or bad. It's, it's sort of like we have to pick a side and they don't recognize that gray area of, and, they, and then it becomes very difficult, difficult to navigate that if you don't have that, that guiding star that you were talking about earlier. And that's exactly what happened at Rockwell. But then once you have the largest portion of the sales team, seeing what the sales individuals in my business could do is they were using Salesforce and the rest of the company was using SAP CRM and it was right. They were wasting sales cycles. They didn't have data. They couldn't get things done. They couldn't enter stuff properly. And once that bubbled up to senior management, they saw, then they re, they repivoted and they said, we're going to go best in breed, but they were very disciplined. Like we are here. That means like you said, all the things about customization, it doesn't mean we're going to pile on and go back to a spaghetti plate because you got to, you know, avoid that. Like if you're really well, I have a rule of seven. Like if you have more than really seven critical systems in a company of scale, then you may have a spaghetti plate type of thing going on. People are just bolting things on and it gets out of control and you end up having to have a deconstruct a decade later. Right. Right. Yeah. Great points. And uh, 
this is from Kyler, our podcast co-host here. It says Samuel wins the ground control best analogy award. I would have to agree with that. I didn't know there was a best analogy award, but apparently <laughs> you, you won it uh, with all the analogies here today. And it, it is very helpful actually to paint that picture using those analogies. So, um, so one last question I'll ask as, as we sort of wrap up here is, is we, I know you've mentioned a few of these trends that are emerging in the space, in the technology space, as it relates to customer centricity. You mentioned, obviously we talked about CRM. Uh, we talked about product configuration. We talked about uh, predictive analytics. Are there any other technologies or trends to be aware of or that should be really top of mind as it relates to this, the whole customer centric digital strategy concept we're talking about here today? I mean, there's, <clears throat> There's stuff that could be way forward leading, but we're we're keeping a discipline of what matters to us. It centers around the blocking and tackling is we keep thinking about our cloud operations. And then what does cloud operations mean? And then is that scalable, sustainable with our customer needs? And then that's what gets into we are hyper focused on how we think about the business intelligence and the predictive analytics and what AI is going to mean to that. But it gets back to the not, not take our eye off the ball, Eric we are hyper-focused on what is data and what does data mean? And then from right. there, I think the technology will be ancillary, meaning that you'll define what it means and the need for it. Technology will figure out then, you know, monetization or use of it. So right. I'm trying to go the opposite direction of it. What do we think is important? Well, obviously being there for our customers every day is important and it can scale and sustain is important. But within that, I, I go the different direction. I look at data is so important. So why is it important? We understand why it's important. Well, how are you going to unlock that importance? And that's when the technology comes in. And that's why I say AI and ML and business intelligence will be important because I think those are just tools that unlock that value there. And that, that's, I, hopefully that answers your question. I kind of look at it in reverse. Yeah. Well, I like that answer a lot actually, because it, it, it sort of, I think it's a, first of all, it's a realistic answer. I think that's the reality of, boots on the ground, frontline digital transformations in, in organizations in general, I think too often they're too enamored by immature bells and whistles that sound good in theory, but don't really support their broader strategy and, and direction. So I think having more mature established technologies that do support your overall digital strategy or overall business strategy, I think that's well said. You, you can always, you want to be on the emerging, on the cutting edge and you want to know what's happening and what's on the horizon. Obviously you want to keep looking ahead. But the reality of where you are today may not be, you may not be quite ready for, you know, AI and machine learning, for example, but it may be that that's part of your longer term roadmap is to get the fundamentals in place first, then you start bringing in AI and machine learning. For example, if you don't have good data, if you don't have a good data management, master data management discipline, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good to start looking at AI and machine learning because your data sucks. So fix the data, figure out how to, how to fit, clean that up and get discipline around that. Then you start to introduce AI and machine learning. So I think that's well stated and i think that's a good strategy is really focus on kind of your core and, and the core you know guiding star to keep using your your analogy from before no that, that's good and it, we use that discipline within our acquisition strategy as well thank you sam great conversation really appreciate having you on the show and thank you to the audience for the great questions and adding to that conversation uh super fascinating topic here uh, in fact we're going to debrief and touch on a few of these things and build on a few of these topics that we covered here with sam in just a moment, but first we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? 
Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 109. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. And uh, Kyler, we just had Sam from Epicor Software on talking about customer-centric digital transformation strategies. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation? Well, great conversation um, and definitely a, a great viewpoint. I always like when we talk about CFOs um, because I think a lot of times um, people don't realize that CFOs are often the decision maker in the digital transformation realm just because it's obviously a huge um, undertaking and investment for the organization. So I think it's great to hear uh, that from a perspective of, of what that looks like and, and those really dollars and cents to focus on customer experience and revenue. And Sam did such such a great job of that. Um, you know, one question I had and kind of wanted to elaborate more on with you is when we're talking about the idea of customer centricity um, and really mapping out your digital transformation strategy to include that, as you talked about, how do you ensure that you're kind of looking at it from both ends, from the customer experience to the, the internal operations and making sure those are integrated all in one? Do you start at both sides and kind of move to the middle or what's that mapping process really look like? Well, a, a couple of things. One is the the end-to-end business process mapping should include both. It should include the beginning of the cycle when a customer or potential customer first reaches out to your organization and they become a, a prospect within your sales pipeline. Um, and then certainly as they become a customer, as they place an order, uh, you produce the order, you deliver your good or service to them, you collect cash, you, you know, you do everything behind the scenes to make that happen. That entire end to end process should ideally capture both. Um, but the other thing you can do to really make sure you don't lose focus or lose sight of what it is you're trying to accomplish is make sure you have KPIs or performance measures identified on how you're going to measure these different business processes and maybe you already do as an organization, which case that's great. You can use that as a starting point, but if you aren't, if you don't have clearly established KPIs and performance measures and expected business benefits that you expect to get out of the transformation, I typically highly encourage organizations to do that because that's going to give you a lot of direction and a lot of focus during your transformation because these, these big software solutions that are out there in the marketplace have so much stuff that it's, honestly overwhelming. It's overwhelming to most organizations. It's way more than most organizations can consume. So if you have the expected business value clearly quantified and you've identified where those business value points are going to be throughout your organization and you're measuring them, then that gives you a lot of clarity when it comes time to make decisions around scope and potential customization and what you want your processes to look like, uh, how you're going to configure the software, all that stuff. 
That's really interesting. And I think it's, um, you know, so important and often a piece in which is not really talked about in, in understanding, you know, the front end of the business or how you can really optimize that, um, specifically in places like demos or anything like that. Um, well, when Sam was talking, I, I thought it was super refreshing how he kind of talked about Epicor. You know, we really know who we are, that SMB type of tier two business. Do you think that's really kind of the future of where the software industry is going, that we will see kind of this emergent of very stronger two tier systems in which will really field a marketplace that has been more underserved by ERP systems? Yeah, I, I do. And I think that technology continues to change very quickly. So it, it, that's one thing that, that supports what you're, you're saying, which is software is changing. There's a lot of advancements, a lot of advancements that come with that. And the barriers to entry are, have gone down over the years to where starting a software company isn't nearly as expensive or difficult as it used to be 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so you combine that, those two things with the third variable, which is that the big software vendors in, in some cases have almost become too big um, to be able to adequately respond to changes in all these different industries and functional verticals that they operate in, that that just leaves openings and vulnerabilities that smaller and younger and more nimble software vendors can go attack. And I think that's just a cycle that you'll always see in the industry. We, we This is nothing new. It's been happening for decades, but I think it's just accelerating a bit. This trend is accelerating now because of the some of the trends that I just mentioned. Well, that was a great conversation. I definitely think there's lots to learn from Sam, um, and we will pop his profile on LinkedIn in the comments here so you can follow him in some more of his thought leadership in uh, the overall enterprise, digital enterprise area. So um, so thank you, Eric, for hosting that, and thank you to Sam for joining us. I definitely learned a lot um, on kind of the importance of understanding the customer's experience and optimizing, making that um, the number one priority in digital transformation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good reminder to sort of, you know, not get too inwardly focused and not lose sight of how, how this could all uh, negatively affect your customer base if you're not careful in how you manage your transformation, but just as importantly, if not more importantly, how can you make your customer experience and customer satisfaction and the, the overall customer journey how can you make that even better with better technologies? And again, I think if you if you define those end to end processes and measures that will that will help you get there. So I think it's a it's a great point, and I appreciate having Sam on the show. He was another another uh, first time guest, so it was great to have him here as well. So uh, thank you, Sam, for being here, and thanks to the audience for such great questions as well during that conversation. So shifting gears just a little bit, we're going to have another vendor on the show or a collaboration with another vendor called Unit Four. And for those that don't know, Unit 4 is a software vendor that specializes in a few industry verticals, including professional services. And they recently interviewed me to talk about digital transformation in the professional services space. So we're going to play you that clip of that interview in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. 
The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 109. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday. This podcast covers everything related to digital transformation, including uh, digital transformation in a number of dis- different industry verticals, such as professional services. And that's the topic we want to shift gears into now. And uh, this is a good conversation, even if you're not in professional services, if you provide any sort of service, or even if you're not a service provider, you're a manufacturer, a distribution type of organization, there's still a lot of really good lessons in this conversation. But this particular conversation was with Unit 4, uh, an ERP software provider based out of Europe, and they interviewed me to talk about uh, about this topic. So why don't we roll the clip and then we'll we'll get into some uh, debrief and some build on some of the threads from that conversation here in just a moment. I'm Bryce Wolf. I'm a senior manager of industry solutions here at Unifor, and I've got the honor of welcoming Eric Kimberling, who's the founder and CEO of Third Stage Consulting. Thank you for joining us today, Eric. Hi, Bryce. Thanks for having me. So, Eric, could you just tell us a little bit uh, about your experience with professional services organizations and uh, just kind of your professional experience to date? Sure. So I'll maybe start with my overall experience and then dive into the professional experience piece of it. Um, I've been in the professional services space for my entire career, um, having been a consultant now for about 25 years. Um, started off at one of the big uh, big four consulting firms back in the late 90s, and now I'm a CEO of a company called Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients with their digital transformations. Um, my experience with professional services, obviously being in the industry for 25 years is one component of that, but also on the consulting side, consulting to other professional services organizations. Um, that's something I've done probably for the last uh, 12 or 15 years of my career, um, along with experience in other industries as well. Okay. So you've got a, a fair bit of experience in the uh, just professional experience and in professional services as well. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I think that really lends itself to to the topic of conversation today, which is digital transformation. So really focusing on those tips on how to avoid common pitfalls that organizations see with that that digital transformation. So so what are what are some common challenges that we see amongst professional services organizations? Yeah, so I mean, you certainly have the common challenges that you see across all industries, which is, you know, a failure to find the right software, a failure to have the right project governance and controls in place, um, not having a clear vision of what it is you want out of technology, that sort of thing. So those are, but those are more broader um, cross-industry challenges that that organizations face. But within professional services in particular, it's really interesting because there's pretty unique challenges within professional services, uh, both from a technological perspective, but also operationally as well. And that includes the the main fact or the main issue, which is that it's such a labor intensive um, industry and therefore human capital management and just managing employees and human resources, HR, 
processes, all that stuff is even more important for professional services firms than most other uh, industries. So I think you've got that sort of human complexity that's a bit more unique and a little bit more magnified in professional services firms. Um, but in addition to that, okay. it's it's also, you know, a, a challenge to to manage uh, resources, you know, managing resources and, and projects is sometimes a lot different or a little less tangible and cut and dry as managing a production or a manufacturing shop floor, which is very predictable and uh, repeatable and that sort of thing. So those are two of the big challenges I see that are fairly unique to uh, professional services organizations. Okay. So to, to touch on that first point there, it sounds like it's much more than just the the technology and the transformation side of things. It's the the people that really that makes it so different from other organizations that have this digital transformation, because with the services organization, it's even more so than other industries. It's all about the people because the, the people are your resource. They are your commodity. So it's really important to make sure that they go along on that journey. So what are some of the impacts to the to the people that you see? Sure. Yeah, and I'd take what you said just one step further, which is the people are actually the product too. You know, that's the product you're selling to uh, to other organizations or to your customers. Um, and so some of the ways to, to, to or ways to manage that or, or things to think about it, it starts with, in my opinion, it starts with culture. You know, what kind of culture is it you're trying to create? You know, what kind of culture do you have now? How might you want to bend that culture or, or pivot on that culture to elaborate on the strengths you have, but, you know, adjust for the future and, uh, you know, constantly improving in that in that area. And so creating that deliberate culture of what kind of culture is it you're trying to create um, is is one important component. And then certainly another component is just looking at the overall employee experience. What kind of employee experience do you want to create, which, by the way, ties very much into the cultural component that I just described. And so, you know, having a clear understanding of what that employee experience should look like, that's something that I would recommend to really any organization, but even more so for PSO uh, organizations. And then, you know, I, I guess a third thing I'll mention is that techno there's a lot of technology out there in the marketplace that can enable a digital transformation, but there's not a lot of technologies that can do this stuff really well. You know, the PSO stuff, the human capital management um, all the stuff we're talking about here, the, the nuances of managing a, a PSO. So I think that's the other piece of it too, is just making sure you're looking at solutions that are built for PSO firms, because you can't take a manufacturing-based software, for example, or a retail-based software and sort of force fit it into a PSO. You, I mean, I suppose you can, but it's not going to be it's not going to be pretty. So I think that's the other consideration as well. Right. You want to make sure you're using a uh, using technology that's built for purpose, which is to support the people. If you're a services organization, it's really it's making sure that you have the right tool that you're selecting, not something maybe that's more geared towards manufacturing or retail, but really one that's focused on services organizations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, one last dimension that comes into uh, that comes to mind is the uh, knowledge management, you know, just the knowledge capital within the organization and how you manage that knowledge capital too. Um, for a lot of professional services organizations, that knowledge base or that collective knowledge and capturing that collective knowledge is super important. So you wanna um, look at that as well, which again, to your point, very different than uh, a manufacturer of widgets. You know, it's just different process and different set of capabilities that you need uh, from your technology and your operations. Right. 
Right. And then, so it sounds like change is something that's really important to take into consideration with this digital transformation. So when you come in and you, you have these, these customers that you're working with as you're doing this analysis, what are some of the things that you look at with regards to, to the change for the, the organization, for the people? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that's important to do is, is to, once you've defined that future state in terms of the culture you're trying to create, the future state operating model, how you think technology could help enable that future state operating model. Once you've defined that future state, then you really want to look at, well, what is that impact to the organization? And more specifically, what is the impact to individual work groups and locations and even just individual, uh, just individuals in general, you know, what are the nuanced impacts that this transformation is going to have on your people. And again, this is all stuff that I'd say to other industry practitioners as well, but this is even more important in PSO organizations because the change management, the human component is going to be even more important because again, it's, it's sort of a, a double whammy. If you don't manage the human side, well, that's a problem with say a manufacturer or retailer, but it's an even bigger problem with PSOs because not only is it an employee just like every organization have, but again, it's your, it's your product. So you're, you're, if you have a negative impact on your product and you don't manage that human component, the stress and the morale impact of, of humans within a PSO organization is felt a lot more, not only internally, but more importantly, and perhaps more in a more risky way, it's felt by customers as well. So that's why that, that human piece is so important and getting that change management piece is right. But it all starts with identifying that gap, you know, the gap between where you are today, what the future state's going to look like and how it affects individuals within the organization. And so how do you do that? How do you help bridge that gap for what, what an organization's doing today versus what they'll be doing tomorrow? What are some things that you look at for, for helping to, to design that future state to help the organization run efficiently through this digital transformation that they're doing? Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess I'll, I'll start off by contrasting to what you shouldn't do. And unfortunately, a lot of organizations do what you shouldn't do, which is you, you sort of lead with technology. You sort of, you say, you know, let's put technology in place. That's going to determine what our future state looks like. We'll train people on how to use the technology and they'll learn to adopt it and everything will be fine. But the reality is, is that's backwards. You should be starting with the business needs and defining what that future state is, defining what the impacts are then you leverage technology to, to help you get there. And it sounds like a subtle shift or a, a nuanced way of just slicing hairs, but it's really important. You know, if you do that backwards, it's, it's, you're not going to get to that uh, change impact. You're not going to have that focus and that understanding of what the impact of your organization and to your people are. Um, so that, that's, that's what comes to mind is just making sure you start with that change assessment. But then going a step further, once you understand current state versus future state, what the impacts are to people, then you want to develop a change strategy and plan that addresses what those impacts are. So in other words, it's not going to be, or it shouldn't be a one size fits all change management plan that you would use for any PSO. You want it to be unique to what it is you're trying to accomplish and what the impacts are between current state and future state. Okay. So, so to start with that impact analysis, what you'll do is you'll look at the people and process technology being the, the last component of it because people and process are the most important things for that impact analysis and then overlaying the technology on it. 
once the impact analysis is complete, that's where we start with the, the change strategy, which takes all of those things into account. And then what are some things that go into a, a change strategy for, for a professional services organization? Once you've done that impact analysis, what's, uh, what's kind of an example, I guess, if you will, that, you, that you've seen for that change strategy? What are the components of it? Sure. Well, first, in maybe taking the change impact a step further is to define what the future organizational design is going to be. So defining how roles and responsibilities are going to look and, and doing more of that org design piece of it. And certainly to the extent that people's processes and their technologies and tool sets are going to change, how does that affect and what does that role and responsibility look for different positions in the organization? But once you've done that, then you get into uh, you know a lot more uh, change impact discussions, ongoing communications, using change agents to help communicate what some of the changes are and to, and to elicit two-way communication. There's a lot of different tactics that can be used. I think the key though is to look well beyond the, the box, I guess you'd say, or the traditional way of thinking about change management, which is training and communications. Training communications is very important, don't get me wrong, but that's only a tiny piece of change management. It's all the upfront stuff. It's all the stuff that happens leading up to the training or the end user training before go live. That's the stuff that's most important because the way I'd like to view change management is you should be able to manage the change effectively to where by the time you get to end user training, it's sort of a non-event and, and there's no real surprises. It's just more of a confirmation of, I already know that my job's changing. I know what my new processes are. Now I just need to understand exactly how this technology is going to work to fit within it. Um, too often organizations find that at go live or at um, pre go live training, you get a lot of freak out moments. And what I mean by freak out moments, which is a very technical term, by the way, um, is you, you, get, <laughs> you, you get people that uh, are surprised. They're hearing for the first time that their job is going to massively change or that you're going to take away that spreadsheet that they use to manage their whole job for the last 20 years. You shouldn't be, there shouldn't be any surprises like that, any material surprises. It should be more that stuff needs to move up front in the implementation. And so that's the key is how do you draw out those freak out moments earlier in the project so that by the time you get to end user training, the dust is settled organizationally, you're not 100% comfortable yet, but at least you've worked through the major issues or surprises. And now it's a matter of just getting the formality of now we're gonna really dial in on how to use the technology and how those new processes are gonna work exactly. Yeah, it sounds like by the time you get to end user training, you want it to be more of the how-to rather than the why and who made this decision and why is my life changing? And you've yeah. got people that, as you said, they have the, the freak out moments. Right. So something that you, you said, one of the things that you had mentioned when you were talking about the, the overall change management piece is something that I find really interesting. Uh, what is the, a change agent? Sure. So a change agent is uh, really a... a another word, or it's oftentimes used interchangeably with super user, or oftentimes it's sort of a blended role where, you know, super user is someone that would be a representative from one department or one location or some hybrid of both that is sort of the business person that understands the technology in the future state really well. And it's sort of a support role of that's the person that, that, that's going to, uh, that I can go to for help, or that's going to give me the information I need. Um, that's more, you know, a lot of times people think a super user is more post-implementation, but those same people oftentimes are the change agents, which is they're the ones that'll go back to their teams and help communicate what some of these changes are. Um, they'll help um, 
elicit their feedback from the team in terms of what their concerns are, what their fears are, what their freakouts are, all that stuff. You want to get that out from using the change agents. It's a great way to do it. So it's a it's a structured way to make sure that while we're all over here in our war room doing all the project based stuff day to day, that we're involving people from the business that are actually living the reality of operations while we're over here in the war room for the project, trying to get the project done. They're the people on the front lines that are working with the other people on the front lines to make sure they're they're understanding what the changes are, that we're getting feedback and, and really using them as sort of a conduit between the project team or the core team and the frontline people that are going to be affected by by the project. Interesting. So, uh, so a change agent would then be more than just a super user. It's going to be more than someone that is just technically savvy, if you will. They, they adopt new tools quickly because that's that's traditionally what I think of as a super user, but it sounds like this change agent needs to be more than that, it needs to be able to, to be an advocate for change within the, the business process, to be a good listener, to listen to, to their teammates, to be able to hear that feedback, and then be able to speak up and take that back to, to the team that's designing the new, the new process, the new tools with everything that comes through. So it sounds like it's it's more than just somebody who's very technical. Absolutely. It's it's more important that they have a solid understanding of the business the way it is today and the business the way it's going to be in the future. And so that's what makes the role so hard is because a lot of times when you have highly tenured people that really understand the business, it's harder for them to change or it's harder for them to think outside the box of what could be. And so it's really hard to find that skill set, but you have to find someone who understands the business, has been around for long enough to know kind of where the bones are buried and all that good stuff, but also, but not, not so entrenched in the current state that they can't think about what the way things could be and they can't help people connect the dots between the two. So it's a pretty unique skill set. It is hard to find, but I'd say it very much is a business focused um, role. I'd say 80, 20, you know, business versus 20%. Um, technically focused and on the te- okay. technical side is not so much technical support. It's more just understanding here's how the technology works. You know, this is the workflow. Here's how we do our processes in the technology. Um, so they're not necessarily like IT support. It's a different sort of more of a functional technology role. Yeah. So then it's more this this change agent in in the change management view with this super user is somebody who has a good understanding of the business process, of the way it is, of the way it will be can communicate why we're doing it this way more so than somebody who's super tech savvy because that's technical support and that's not necessarily this role that we're talking about. This change agent, so something I kind of picked up on as we were talking about is there's a lot of resistance to to change as we have our, our current state and then we have that transition to the future state, everything that we've done for it. So this change agent, it sounds like, is somebody that helps with that resistance. So in my experience, there's generally a lot of resistance as we move to, to a new process, to a new technology. So how do you manage that resistance? What does a change agent have to do with it? And then what are some other things, some other strategies that you have with managing that resistance to the change? Well, it's a great question. The first thing that we typically do and recommend to our clients is to is to measure where the pockets of resistance might come from. And the key here is that you can't wait until you see the resistance. I mean, most organizations 
won't do anything about the resistance until they see it. You know, they see that someone is is pushing back or a certain part of the company is not on board with this this project or with the changes that are that are coming downstream. And by then it's it's I don't want to say it's too late, but it's a lot harder to address it when you've gotten to that point because it, you the resistance has generated enough energy and momentum that it's a lot harder to push back on it uh, by that point. So the key is to really how do you measure it? Yeah, that's, that's how do you how do you measure potential future resistance to change that may or may not come? Well, you measure things that are likely to cause resistance. So I'll give you an example. One example would be, um, let's just say it's an organization that maybe a lot of people listening can relate to this within their organizations. But let's just say your organization is one that self um, assesses itself, or or if you ask someone within the organization. They'll say that we're a very siloed organization. We don't communicate well across departments. Let's just say that's sort of a fine. I've I've never seen that. I've never seen that before, Eric. I'm sure none of your none of your customers have. No, not, not, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> but a lot of times, what you do is, you know, we'll do we'll we'll start off by doing an organizational readiness assessment, which is an online survey meant to ask a bunch of questions around communication, leadership, collaboration, innovation, just sort of questions that are unpacking who is this organization and what's the culture right now. And so you're trying to quantify something that's very subjective. So then that's intentional. We want to quantify it so we can see how it compares to other organizations and how different departments and different parts of the organization compare within itself. But once we do that, then you start to back to the example, you might uncover during that, that survey and assessment, you might find that there's a, there's a pretty strong, um, perception within the company that there is a lack of communication, lack of collaboration. On the surface, you think, well, that's that's why we need to put in new technology and that's why we're going through this project. So what's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal because that now you're, you're forcing uh, pretty significantly and pretty quickly, relatively quickly, you're forcing a level of collaboration and end-to-end business processes and um, integrated workflows, integrated systems that, that is going to force that collaboration, but that's different than where you are today. It very much is probably the direction you want to go, but you have to recognize that there is going to be resistance to that. It's just a different, it's a bit of a cultural shock. And so you have to recognize that yes, collaboration is better. Even if employees say that collaboration is a good thing, it's still a culture shock to to change overnight what you've done for years or decades prior to this project. So that's the way you, you start to quantify is you look at what kind of scores and ratings people are giving the organization itself. And you do this across a, a broad uh, sample of, of a pretty large sample within the organization. So you're getting, you know, a, a complete picture of the culture. And then you look at where those pockets of resistance might be. And that, that collaboration is a big one. Another cause of resistance oftentimes is there's a distrust of management or leadership. So if there's, if you're an organization that just doesn't trust management or, um, you know, maybe the company's go- has gone through some recent tough times and therefore there were some layoffs and, um, you know, people blame the executive leadership for that. You just have to recognize that's a source of resistance. There's going to be resistance that comes from that. And so you have to anticipate what that is and how you modify and tailor your change strategy and plan to address the fact that that's the source of resistance that you're likely to face. You just don't want to wait until people start to revolt or push back on the project later on as it, as it goes. All right, we're playing you a clip of my conversation with Unit 4 talking about digital transformation in professional services. We still have a lot more to cover, so we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back to the conversation. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 109, and we're here playing you a clip of a conversation I had with Unit 4, the software provider, talking about digital transformation in professional services. Let's get back to the conversation. And I feel like that's probably pretty common, right? You have leadership that's not being trusted for this change because we're changing something. We're changing something that we've we've always done it this way. That's the most common thing that I hear is, why would we do it differently? We've always done it this way. We're, we're in a good place. We're fine. Even if you're not in a good place, you just there's that level of comfort that makes you feel like you're in a good place. So for, for those types of change resistance, there's probably a special strategy that you need to do. There's certain things that you need to do that would be different from a different pocket of resistance. And for a services organization, that's probably something that's pretty common. So do you have do you have any examples of how you've you've solved that, what you've done to to be able to to help with that change resistance? Sure. Yeah, so it, it depends on what the change resistance is, but let's just stick with the um, the distrust of management. If there's a distrust of management or or another common one is th there's a perception that there's not enough communication from management. There are people are craving more direction or more communication about what's going on from management. Well, if that's the case, then maybe what we do as part of our change strategy is we double down on the whole concept or the strategy of having more messaging come from some of those key leaders. Um, so in other words, rather than having being the project team or the CIO or um, even the change agents within the, the organization that we talked about before, those people can still be part of the communication plan, but you might be more focused on, on leadership delivered pre, um, communications which is almost always a good idea to begin with, but you might just wanna do more of it because people are craving that. And that's part of the resistance you might see. Because if you go through the project and you just keep things the way they are, people already have this perception they don't trust management or, or they're not getting enough information from management, then they're gonna be a bit skeptical of this project. So um, it's, it's important to have that dialogue and, the, and to create that connection in this case, for example, that connection between leadership and the, the frontline employees. Okay. So is that, is that something, do you see that often? Is it more something else? It, it seems like this is probably a pretty common one though. Um, are there other major resistance to change those, those pockets, other ones, or are those kind of the, the main two that you see for services organizations, especially? Yeah, those are, those are big ones. I'd say in services organizations, another big one, um, trying to think of how to articulate this in a, a politically correct way. But, but a lot of times when you get knowledge, <laughs> you get knowledge based workers that are very smart, not to say that other people outside of PSO are not smart, but 
when you get a service-based organization, if they're highly educated, uh, potentially highly paid, whatever the case may be, or at least higher paid or higher educated than some other fields, um, that can be a strength, but it can also work against you. And I've, I found that a lot of PSOs with really smart people, especially like, um, for example, uh, we, we had one client that had a bunch of PhDs and engineers, you know, sort of their, um, their employee base. And the very smart people, but sometimes the really smart people are the ones that don't, they, they're even more resistant to change because they know their stuff. They don't need you to tell them how to make their job better or whatever. So I think that's a, that's sort of a, a unique nuance within PSO, but even, you know, another one is aside from whether, you know, someone's a PhD or has no college degree or whatever their education is setting that aside. Another common one that's pretty is very common in PSO organizations and even other organiz other industries as well is this dynamic of uh, ownership and heroics. So in other words, I, you as the organization or you as my boss, Bryce, you value me because I can get stuff done. I can power through these broken systems and broken processes. I've created this really cool spreadsheet that helps manage and track all this stuff. And the minute you put in a new system that automates some of that, um, that's a threat to me. Now that now suddenly I'm not quite, I don't feel as worthy or as value add to the organization. And, and by the way, what does that mean to my job? If you take away my spreadsheet and suddenly you don't need me to be a hero, you've got a repeatable, predictable process now and a technology tool that does a lot of what I used to do. So now suddenly- Yeah, where's my value? Yeah. So you've got to create that value. Like, so how, how do I, what is my value going forward? It's going to look different. I'm not going to be managing the spreadsheet that I've managed for 20 years. Maybe that's not my value anymore, but I've got some other value, and I, but I need to know what that is. And someone needs to define that first. And, and that's a really important nuance, especially in uh, PSO organizations. It's really important, but oftentimes gets overlooked. Okay. So, so just to, to kind of summarize everything that we just talked about there, it's, it starts with the people, the process, and then the technology. So right. those are, that's kind of the, uh, that might be the order people process might be process people, but certainly the technology coming, coming last. Sure. And we do that, that impact analysis, the impact plan, and then the change strategy, everything that we, we have that's bringing together to focus on the people process and technology. And then, so that, that really kind of, that is our, our change management plan with everything that goes into it, are there any other pieces that, that come that really follow it up? You know, I think the next step after that, once you have a sense of what you want your high level future state processes and people to look like, is then you think, okay, now what technology options are out there that fit that model that I'm trying to pursue? You know, it needs to fit my industry, like we talked about. It needs to be a PSO uh, centric type of technology that was built for PSO organizations or has strong capabilities that PSO organizations need. So you, you identify the needs and then you start to identify what are those sort of short list of options that, that meet those needs. And so then it, you sort of shift into the evaluation process, you know, what kind of technology out there um, is going to be best for us? How do we compare it? Um, and then how do we ultimately find that solution that's best for us and best for our industry, but also best for our specific needs within that industry? Okay. Okay. So yeah, that, that technology comes last. Once you have that future state, you make sure that you're buying something that's fit for purpose for a professional services organization. You would want something that is built for and tailored to a professional services firm. Right. So that, that all makes sense to me. Um, so I, uh, 
you know, that's change management is such a, such an interesting and challenging topic. Uh, do you, do you have any other, like, I don't know, kind of a, a quick example of that light bulb moment, because that's what it comes down to, right? You've got the people, you've got the process, you've got the technology. What's, uh, something that stands out to you for that light bulb moment of what we've done is great. Where we're going is fantastic. We have the right tool in place for it. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I I'd say the the light bulb moment is more likely to come when not only do you do you find the right solution. Obviously, obviously you need that solution that fits that's fit for purpose, fits what your needs are. Um, but what's even more important is then connecting the dots or or sort of um, enabling the potential of that software or of that technology via you know, actual adoption of the software and smooth business processes and added, added business value. Um, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of what you just described as far as people in process first and then technology and going through a deliberate and uh, effective process, you're not going to feel like you're having a light bulb moment because it's going to be sort of a natural progression and it's not going to be easy, but you're going to get to that value, you know, that place of value and ROI and all the stuff you're trying to accomplish with your project. I guess I would, I'd probably, a Unfortunately, it's easier to see the negative light bulb or to see the light bulb uh, shattering when you do it the other way. That's where it, you kind of project halt, <laughs> and you know it's a, it's a lot more dramatic. So you don't want that opposite of the light bulb. But when the light bulb comes on, I, I don't know that you really feel it. It's just sort of like a you know a natural progression. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question or not. But yeah, smooth. Smooth is fast, as they say. Smooth is fast. So it's all about having that that smooth process throughout. And not necessarily having that aha moment, but really making sure there's no oh no moments along the way. And that is, in effect, our aha moment that we have. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Okay. Okay. That's really cool. That's really cool. Eric, I appreciate your time. You know, we've been talking so much about change management and digital transformation. What do you what do you like to do for fun? You're in Colorado, right? Yep. So I, I am in Colorado in, in the United States. So I, I like uh, anything outdoorsy. Um, would like to ski. Um, I'm, I'm at the phase of life where I have two teenage boys that are heavily involved in school and sports, uh, sports in particular. Um, so a lot of my time is consumed now with, uh, with, with sports stuff. Uh, prior to these teenage years, and hopefully after their teenage years, <laughs> there I have a strong interest in and music and playing music in particular, but also just enjoying music. So I have a, a very uh, musical, um, not background, but just a musical interest. Um, so that's a big uh, part of what I do. I, I love to read. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, a nerdy that way, I guess you'd say. I love to read nonfiction stuff and I, any chance I get, I'll, I'll do that as well. What's the the last book that you read? Um, I reread um, Crossing the Chasm uh, from, I think it's Jeffrey Moore is the is the uh, author. It's about innovation and how you get to um, widespread adoption of a product or service. So it's a, everything I read nonfiction for the most part is going to be business related. So I read, I read a lot of business books, sometimes some stuff about technology too, but more, more business. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Awesome. Well, I guess what, what instrument, so music, so that's the last book you read, but what's, what's your instrument of choice? Uh, well, I started off, I learned, I first learned guitar when I was 30. So I didn't learn until I was older. Um, so when I was 30, I, I started by playing um, acoustic guitar. Then I switched to electric guitar for a few years, really like that. 
and uh, more most recently uh, bass guitar. So my favorite is bass right now, and it has been for the last decade or so. Um, and that's probably the one I'd stick with. I still like to pick up an acoustic or electric guitar just to mess around every so often, but I really enjoy bass. And I think that just, that's, and now when I hear music, that's the thing I hear the most is the bass, the bass line. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate your time, Eric. Uh, just one, one last question before we go is where, where does an organization start with the change process? Where, what's the best place to start with that? You know, the simplest, easiest, and most effective thing to start with, in my opinion, on the change side is to do that organizational assessment to, to really do that. The survey I talked about, we also do focus groups to get some qualitative data to back the quantitative get data that we get from the organizational assessment. But that'll really sort of do a lot of things. It's going gonna, it's gonna to validate and quantify some of the things you're already feeling within your culture, within your organization. But more importantly, it's also going to give you some more clear direction on once you analyze the results, you'll have more clear direction of what it is that needs to be done from a change perspective. Um, so I think, you know, when we look at working with our clients, that organizational assessment takes just a, a relatively tiny amount of time and money in billings on our side, but it generates so much value because now you've got, now you've got the lay of the land and now you can craft a change strategy that, that meets those needs rather than just you know, sending a bunch of people to go get ProSci certified and then hoping that they come in and figure out how to do the change management that, you know, go get people educated in change management. Of course, that's that's not a bad thing. But more importantly, is to make sure you have a clear direction based on your current situation and where you're headed. Yeah. And tailored to the individual organization, I'm sure, because it's yeah. not one size fits all. Even in the same industry, it's it's different for everybody. Yeah, that's very true. All right. Good stuff. Thank you for that interview. And uh interesting topics that we covered there. In fact, we're going to build on a few of those threads here in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 109. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, we just had the or we just replayed the interview I had with Unit 4 not too long ago to talk about digital transformation and professional services. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation? Well, I didn't really know, and you, I had learned from you, which I always do, um, is that professional services, one of their nuances or, or key considerations when considering a new technology or an enterprise technology is really the people side. Um, and it seems to be not only on the change management side, but also just understanding 
human capital management and the organization of professional services because of the infrastructure of their business. So that was something that I learned. I didn't realize that that was um, so key, truly understanding what that looked like from a, a system and organizational standpoint. Yeah, it's a great point and, and, and a good segue. I wish I would have thought of that uh, sooner. I thought of that myself. I could have segued a little bit uh, cleaner from the conversation earlier in this podcast talking about customer focus or, or customer experience. Uh, but in this case, we're talking about uh, employee experience, which is important for any organization, but especially a professional services firm, which in which case the, the, the human capital is the product that is the service you're selling and delivering to your customers. So I, it's a great point that any organization that's going through digital transformation not only should think about the customer journey, the customer experience, and the customer-centric piece that we talked about in, earlier in this episode, but also the employee experience as well. And it was almost like that was an organizational change conversation, um, which we don't often get from when you do vendor speaking engagements. I think it's becoming more and more prevalent, um, but they seem to truly understand probably from experience the importance of organizational change initiatives specifically for professional services, like you said, because really the assets there, um, you know, is the, is the talent management, is the employee management. And if you don't understand those nuances outside of the process and the technology, then it's going to be extremely difficult to implement it in that environment specifically. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's, I guess there's two threads there, two layers. One is the actual implementation itself and making sure that you have your employees on board and that you've got the change management to ensure that the implementation itself goes well and that you get the adoption at the time of go live. Uh, but also just longer term, making sure that you're maximizing, um, you know, employee stickiness and employee satisfaction and just getting the most out of your employees. Um, that's something that, that, uh, you know, one of the one of the important benefits of taking that approach can can bring to the table. Absolutely, and it's a a great um, overall conversation. And do you want to just give us a little bit of background in Unit Four specifically? I will pop your independent review video here in the comments. And if anyone has had experience with Unit Four, we'd love to hear your case studies or overall feedback in the comments too. Um, but it is a, a pretty unique system. So maybe if you could just give us a, a quick overview of um, their specialty and kind of some considerations when evaluating unit for four for your business. Yeah, I'd, I'd compare unit four in some ways to Epicor, um, who was on the show earlier today, or the CFO from the show, from their company was on the show, um, in that both are fairly focused on a few things and they try to do a few things really well. Um, that's a lot different than the bigger software vendors like SAP and Oracle and Microsoft who are trying to provide broader solutions that can do a lot more than that, which could be good if you're a highly diversified organization or you're a large, really complex organization. But if you're a professional services firm and you really need that, you know, resource tracking and uh, competency tracking and scheduling and time reporting and all the stuff that's so important to professional services organizations, uh, Unit 4 does that really well. And I think there's three or four industry verticals that they tend to focus on, professional services being one. But I think the key, though, is, you know, recognizing that, you know, a lot of people listening may not have heard of Unit 4. Unit 4 is not a small vendor, but they just don't have the household name recognition, especially outside of Europe, that SAP and Microsoft and others may have. It doesn't mean they don't have the resources and the R&D and the great product behind them, because they do. 
but it's just a good reminder that there's a lot of a lot of good alternatives out there. If you don't want one of the big, you know, one of the big complex ERP software providers, there's a lot of focused ones out there that could be good fits as well. So it's just a matter of understanding those options and comparing the cost benefit of the of the different options you have. Excellent. Well, great interview and definitely go out and check out Unit 4's podcast. And thank you to Bryce for all the great questions um, as well. And um, overall, we have um, a great relationship with with Unit 4. We've You've done a few speaking engagements too. So if you want to know more about Unit 4, definitely um, visit our blog on our website, or also you can go search on our YouTube channel where we feature um, some of the additional pieces that we've we've done for their community as well. Yeah. Yep. Great. It's great to Great to have a couple different vendors on the show to to kind of share perspectives with and and engage with and in, in the content here today and the, the topics of today. So, uh, thank you for for that conversation. So, uh, th- speaking of thank yous, thank you, Kyler, for another great episode, and and thank you to the audience for the great questions and for listening in. I have a favor to ask the audience, as I always do, which is if you don't mind just sharing this podcast with colleagues and peers that you think might be interested in the content, we'd love to continue spreading the word and getting um, getting this podcast message out there. It's already number one on the charts and digital transformation podcast named after David Bowie songs. Uh, in this case, space oddity was the, the reference uh, to ground control, uh, major Tom to ground control. If you, if you know that song from many years ago, but I'd like this to be like number, you know, top 10 overall, you know, in technology or business and technology, you know, those categories. So you can help us get there by getting the word out there, leave us a review, uh, give us a, a rating on the, the podcast apps. If you're listening there, I'd uh, love to get your feedback and be sure to subscribe to us on, on YouTube and our other social media platforms as well. So hope you all have a great week. Thank you for being here. We look forward to seeing you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Have a great day and we'll see you soon. I don't know if you can hear me, but you are frozen at the moment. Either that or I am frozen in the cloud and don't know. Focus. Do not disturb. Excellent. Okay, great. Thanks for the tip there. Sure. It uh, only took me like a year and a half to figure that out. (laughs) I'm filming these podcasts.